0: Tom, Tom Cody, it's been a long time, pal. How's your hammer hanging? How's it going, Clyde? (laughs) Well, not so hot. I got beat up trying to save your old girl. I could use a little help with those guys. You should have been there, Tom. It'd been like the old days when we were in school. We'd have kicked ass.
1: Hey, bartender, you gonna shoot the shit all night or you wanna get me another drink?
0: Hey, Tom, would you get a load of this little honey? She thinks she owns the place.
1: I'm just trying to get myself a drink, pal.
0: Well, maybe you've already had enough babe you gotta be kidding me do i look like i'm kidding you No, know, maybe you ought to pay up as well you've been driving up a cab here all night we're not real big on credit
1: are you trying to say that i can't pay yeah let's see the color of your money they're happy yeah but now i don't like your face you know everywhere i go there's always an asshole
2: Hello again, friends. This is the Film Effect Podcast.
3: Good
2: morning, Film Effect. That's it. Mm-hmm. That, that's the end of the game right there. That's World War Three. Fucking hot
3: recording right now.
0: I literally never wanted to punch movie in its face more than I had last night.
3: Definitely worth your time. It's it's definitely worth revisiting.
2: Fifteen minutes in, I'm like, uh, Dorothy, we're not in Oakland anymore. It's in 4K, buddy. Check it out.
0: It were kind of like an afternoon,
2: you like drive time type thing, <laughs> or like the type of podcast you listen to at work. So let's get down to the nitty gritty. Hello again and welcome everybody to the Film Effect Podcast, where we give movies the full effect deep dive for the Film Effect Archive. We've definitely got something going on this week because it's not every day that we get to break down a rock and roll fable, so let's do this. I'm Ed.
3: And I'm Corey.
2: And this is Streets of Fire.
0: I'll be coming for her and I'll be coming for you, too. Sure you will. And I'll be waiting. You are about to enter a world unlike any you've ever seen before. Where rock and roll is king. The only law is a loaded gun. Where the beautiful...
1: You can see the show, it's really good The
0: brutal I want Tom Cody And the brave all meet From now on, it's for real In Streets of Fire
4: You're lying in your bed and on a Saturday night You're swinging buckets and it's not even hard
0: The creators of 48 Hours, Universal Pictures presents Michael Paré, Diane Lane, Rick Moranis, and Amy Madigan in a Walter Hill film, Streets of Fire.
2: In Streets of Fire, a mercenary is hired to rescue his ex-girlfriend, a singer who has been kidnapped by a motorcycle gang. So yeah, here we go with this film. Um... Obviously, we talked about this one in our Escape from New York episode. This is your first time watching it. Um, yeah, I mean, uh, this is, of course, Walter Hill. Came out the year I was born in '84. It was supposed to be a big event of a film, but unfortunately, it didn't quite catch on. Um, and, you know, it's a cult comedy. A lot of people, I mean, it's a classic. A lot of people, um, you know, uh, often refer to this movie as inspiration and. You know, I was really late to the party myself, getting into it, which we'll get into soon. Uh, soon but uh, you know, I'm just happy that we're covering this movie. And enough about me. Your first time, what were your initial thoughts of this movie?
3: <laughs> yeah, I had never uh, seen this. Obviously, like you mentioned, I had vaguely heard of it because I had seen like a couple clips of Willem Dafoe as like a you know as the leader of a motorcycle gang. Right. So that was the extent of uh, what I knew about it. That and Michael Pare looked like he was from, like, the 50s or Depression era. <laughs> That's what I remembered from, like, a few pictures and clips Pretty much. I had seen. Yeah, and I knew the premise, like, I knew it was, like, you know, just a bare-bones, like, silly story to have the, you know, rock and roll um, musical-type uh, fable thing going on. But, yeah, honestly, uh, I didn't really know what to expect. Um, but... I had fun. Yeah, it was enjoyable. You know, if you go into the right mindset with it, I mean, you know, it is the movie heavy on plot or great on story? No. But I mean, does it look awesome? The Are the songs really cool? Yeah. I mean, it's definitely a throwback to a bygone era. Uh, you, you know, you don't see a movie like this made anymore, uh, but definitely uh, back then. So, yeah, it was enjoyable. I can see why it wasn't like a big... Uh, you know, hit, like, I could see why it wasn't a monster blockbuster, you know, I, yeah, you know, I kind of, I could kind of understand, I, I could see why this film wouldn't be for everybody, but I had a really good time, yeah, I enjoyed it a lot more, uh, than I thought I was going to.
2: Yeah, it's, it's a movie that I think just came out at the wrong time, um, yeah, it's, it's got a lot going for it, I kind of often think compared to, like, a like an 80s version of the West Side Story but uh y- y- you know you really uh you use that word fun and that's definitely the right word to use for this movie this is a fun movie i always have a blast watching it um let's just get into it real quick cuz it-, it ties into what i'm about to say first time viewings uh, it's it's just that
4: you see this
0: is actually uh,
4: my my first time
0: no no my fir- it's my first time uh since my first time so Technically that's my second time and I don't, I don't, I don't want to suck at it. So if I'm
4: not up to, uh, so
2: yeah, I saw this for the first time earlier this year. Um, I was actually at, it was back in like the summertime. I was down at the Sound garden with Justin and we were just buying a bunch of shit and I called this, they had a, you know, the, the, the shout factory copy of this was, uh, for sale. And I had it in my hand, and I went back and forth for a little bit, um, and yeah, I just w- went in with it. I, I, I blind bought it, and brought it home, watched it almost immediately, and I think the next day, I started listening to the soundtrack, and honestly, the soundtrack is something that I listen to quite often. In fact, when I got my, you know, all, all the platforms do the year-end shit, and, I, I don't listen to Spotify um, or whatever the, the popular platform. Apple Music is the other one. Since I have YouTube Premium, I take full advantage of YouTube Music, and that's my go-to uh, music listening app. So, they had their year-in for the first time, actually. I've been uh, listening to YouTube Music for a couple years now, and this was the first time I recall them having like a year-in thing that I got this look at the other day, and it tells you your top five albums that you've listened to throughout the year. This was number five, Streets of Rage Sound, Streets of Fire soundtrack. So, um, yeah, big fan of that. So, and obviously, Corey, this was your first time. <laughs> so, yeah. Not really yep. much, in, not really much uh, to talk about in terms of that. So let's, um, you know, I don't have much of a story for this one. So let's just get into uh, live top five.
0: Rob, it's your turn. Okay. I'm feeling kind of basic today. Top five side ones, track ones. Janie Jones, Clash, from The Clash.
2: Yeah. Let's get it on, Marvin Gaye from Let's Get It On. Nirvana smells like teen spirit off of Nevermind. Oh no, Rob, that's not obvious enough, not at all. How about uh, Point of No Return on Point of No
0: Return? Lewis, so you
2: can uh, get up a- <laughs> Shut up, shut up. <laughs> white light, white heat. Velvet Underground? Okay, that would be on my list. Though not and on mine. Massive attack, no protection. The song is radiation oh. ruling the nation. So it's a Walter Hill film. Let's do our top five favorite Walter Hill movies. Um, I have one honorable mention. And God damn it it almost came close to being number five. to the ahead. Say what you will about that movie. I always have fun watching it. It is short, sweet, to the point. It's, you know... It's it's cheesy. It's like like I said uh, earlier about Streets of Fire being released at the wrong time. I think Bolt to the head came out at the wrong time because you know it was definitely back when Shaw Stallone was making his grand comeback to the action with like The Expendables and uh, other stuff that he was doing. Escape Plan with Schwarzenegger. He had like a run going on about ten years ago, and this was towards the tail end of it all. And if, if I. I seem to remember, like, vaguely, I borrowed your Blu-ray. That was my first time watching that film. Was I borrowed it from you, I think. Yeah. You owned, yeah. You owned it, didn't you? Okay, so that, 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 yeah, that checks out then. So that's my honorable mention. Uh, number five for me, that was Extreme Prejudice. Um, this yeah, I gotta watch that. <laughs> yeah, Vestron, I'll, I'll lay it on you. Vestron, oh, actually, the digital copy's on my Voodoo. But Vestron put that out uh, earlier this year. And I've typically been buying all their releases, for better or worse. And that one, obviously, was one that I picked up and hadn't seen before. And I was taken aback of, A, how much, how many like faces were in that movie. And B, just how heavily cliched of an action movie from the 80s is. But I still loved every goddamn second of it. So it's a real fun movie. Um, one that I've watched a few times since I bought that Blu-ray. So, how about you?
3: <laughs> so, um, my number five is, I don't I, I don't know, it's not really a movie, so I guess it's kind of cheating. But uh, Walter Hill is involved with Tales from the Crypt, and he actually directed uh, the very first episode.
2: Mm, yeah, um, with, um, yeah. Uh, what's his face? Um, is, oh my god, I'm drawing a blank here. It was the Grim Reaper. He was death in the Bill and Ted movies. Oh my god, William Sadler
3: yeah well we saw it the one uh where you can't die essentially yeah so uh yeah i just wanted to bring that up because i tales from the crypt like we mentioned on the show before i mean one of my favorite all-time series i, I love anthology type series like that and uh, walter actually did three episodes um but uh, the one that stood out is the very first episode, uh, you know, iconic. I just remember watching it when I was young and just loving every second of it. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to put that on my list, even though it's not a movie. He, you know, he was heavily involved with Tales from the Crypt. So I will uh, mention that on there for number five.
2: Didn't he do the episode Yellow with Kirk Douglas and Dan Aykroyd?
3: He might have did that. I know he did one. That, it was was like... a,
2: that was like an extended episode. It was like a, a World War Two episode with uh, uh, uh Michael Douglas's son was also in that episode i forgot his name he's no longer with us but a lot of people showed up in that lance hendrickson it was a you know a, a big episode at the time yeah, i think it, i think th- it premiered on fox actually instead of hbo
3: the two i remember he did because it, it said he did three i i the first episode uh with like we said the man who's death and then he did one uh cutting cards it was like a western ah,
2: that's Lance Hendrickson. Uh, that's lance hendrickson's other yep. episode i think the yep. uh, Russian Roulette and all they do all kinds of crazy shit and they start losing body parts throughout the episode I remember that one
3: yeah those are the two I remember that he did
2: I'm it up real quick because I'm curious because yellow is a really good episode uh no Robertson Mechas did that one okay anyway number four for me trespass god damn speaking of William Sadler and um Bill Paxton who we're going to talk about a little bit later he, uh, that's a movie of, uh, a couple firefighters go to this, like, abandoned, like, a, uh, apartment complex for some gold. <laughs> and, uh, it gets overrun by Ice-T and his gang. And it's, it's, it's a wild movie. Shout Factory put out a, a Blu-ray of it years back. I never, I never did pick it up. But it's a movie I saw a handful of times. It came out around the same time as Judgment Night, like, the mid to early 90s. Um, it's it's a good movie. If you've never seen it, check it out. my number four.
3: Yeah, never seen it. Um, my number four, it's not like a well-loved movie, but it, it's one I grew up watching and I I've always been a huge fan, and that's uh Brewster's Millions. Um you know, I I love <laughs> yes. Richard Pryor. Uh, you know, he, just seeing him as a lead in the movie, his charisma alone uh, can carry a movie for me, you know, even if it's not the greatest. And I just always love the premise that, you know, he's gotta give away all this money. Uh, to inherit more money i i I just like that idea is it a great richard pryor movie no it obviously is it the best walter hill no because it's at the bottom of my list but it's just one i grew up watching and enjoyed so uh when i'm thinking walter hill that's one of the first things i think is brewster's millions
2: yeah and john candy too he actually that was actually yep that was his follow-up film he did that one after this film street to fire so um okay number three is, Walt, I'm, I'm taking it back, Walter Hill's second film, The Driver. Um, so many movies that you and I both love have drawn inspiration from this film. Uh, most notably Drive, but, um, you know, Baby Driver is another one. Pretty much any action film involving a car chase, authentic car chases, um, they can definitely guarantee they've, they've cited The Driver as if not the inspiration, one of the inspirations, so um, good one, Ryan O'Neill, Bruce Stern, um, Ronnie Blakely, who is uh, Heather uh, Langenkamp's mother in the original Elm Street, uh, but yeah, good movie, uh, written and directed by Hill, you know, it's a Lawrence Gordon movie, so take that as you will, so yeah, that's my number three.
3: Yeah, never seen that one either. Yeah, I was as I was looking through, I realized I was like, man, I haven't seen quite a few of his uh, older ones. He's got a lot of movies. <laughs> I was like, yeah. Um, so, hold on one second. Sure. Yeah, so my number three, uh, is actually a film we're about to talk about, Streets of Fire. Uh, like I said, I enjoyed it a lot more than I thought I was going to, and you know, fun is definitely the word I would use. So, looking forward to talk about it more.
2: Yeah, same here. It's my number two. So, well, we're going to jump into it shortly. Uh, How about you? What's your number two?
3: Uh, Yeah, so the top two for me are not even close. Like, these two, you know, as far as my love and, in my view, the quality, uh, it's way above the other ones we were talking about. So my number two is 48 Hours. I mean, how could it not be at the top of your list? At at least for me, for Walter Hill. I mean, who can forget Eddie, Eddie Murphy, Nick Nolte, Buddy Cop, Uh, I just love this movie. I mean, I've seen it so many times. It's just like ingrained into my soul. It was just just one of those where anytime it was on TV, no matter where it was, I would start watching. I mean, it's like one of my favorite, uh, Eddie Murphy movies, uh, you know, Nick Nolte before he became old man, Nick Nolte. So yeah, I just (laughs) love it. It's just like one of the best examples of eighties buddy cop comedy. I mean, who doesn't love it?
2: Uh, two things. One, both the films, both the 48 hours films came out today on 4k. Uh, so uh. I had to, th- I had to throw that out there. And number two, I have never seen 48 hours. I've seen another 48 hours, but I've never seen oh, wow. the original 48 hours. So yeah, I definitely have to check that out. Um, i am probably gonna blind buy along with another 48 hours. But you know, another forty eight hours is what it is. Eh, it would be, it yeah. would be on my list if I had seen it recently. I haven't seen another forty-eight hours since I was a kid. But I've definitely seen it. Watch I know like <laughs> I know like um uh Andrew Divoff, the wishmaster, plays the villain. He's got like long hair and shit. And uh, apparently Brian James was like a good guy in the first film. I know he turns into a villain in the second movie, so that's that number one for me that was the warriors i mean how can it not be i love the warriors just yeah we're we're definitely covering that movie next year so the warriors is my number one
3: yeah i mean how can it not be warriors come
4: out to play
3: play.
2: yes (laughs) patrick kelly it's great
3: yep that's easily number one uh you know i i I just recommended it uh, with Escape from New York uh, last week. So mm-hmm. that should tell you right there uh, mm-hmm. how highly I feel the movie. I I just love the movie. It was one I discovered when I was a teenager. I didn't see it as a kid or anything like that. Uh, but I just think it captures that time period, that aesthetic. I just love the whole story of the gag trying to get through this jungle of a city. Mm-hmm. <laughs> just perfect. From start to finish. And the game is awesome, too. The one, I think it was PlayStation
2: 2. PlayStation 2, yeah.
3: Yeah, just an awesome game. Like, I don't know why it was made. I don't know why it came out then. <laughs> I don't know why I the guess hell it got put out. Yeah, I guess it was a resurgence in interest around that time. But, yeah, the game was awesome as well. I remember really having fun with that. But, yeah, Warriors, I mean, I think for a lot of people that would be at the top of their Walter Hill list. So, yeah, for me, it wasn't any question. It was either going to be... uh this film or 48 hours. But yeah, Warriors edges it out for me.
2: I think the game came out because it was a lot of, uh, fan resurgence. It gained a lot of popularity around that time. And I think because that was the same time Paramount put out that director's cut on DVD and that was a big hit, uh, when that came out. Um, now I know that's a big, when it comes to the Warriors, there's always a big back and forth. It's actually not even really a back and forth because most people say, fuck the director's cut. They hate the comic strip setup and everything that happens in that version of the movie. Me personally, my take on it, I am only familiar with the director's cut. I've never seen the theatrical because I saw it after that DVD came out. Sean bought it and I came over to his house and he introduced it to me. So I have never seen a movie that I've never seen a version of the Warriors without the comic book panel. So that's kind of embedded in me. So, of course, I'm a fan of it, but I know how a lot of people hate that and you know that's perfectly fine like I said in my defense I've never seen the original how it was apparently meant to be shown so um, yeah let's talk about Streets of Fire though All right, so according to Walter Hill, the film's origins came out of a desire to make what he thought was a perfect film when he was a teenager and put in all the things that he thought were great then and which I still have great affection for. Custom cars, kissing in the rain, neon, trains in the night, high-speed pursuit, rumbles, rock stars, motorcycles, jokes in tough situations, leather jackets, and questions of honor. The film was was a uh, notable bomb more on that later on with numerous people who worked on it not even having the nicest things to say about the film like jim steinman who was a songwriter for the films uh, for the songs that we heard in the movie he later recalled as thinking the script was terrible but he thought the film was going to be a big hit and part of because of the enthusiasm of producer joel silver he said this movie is about visuals it's about excitement it's about thrills don't worry about the script I remember mentioning it to six or seven people that the script was trashy, and I always got the same answer. The script doesn't matter. This movie is about visuals. Then we go to the first edit, the first cut of the movie in the screening room, and it's Jimmy Levine and me and Joel Silver. About 20 minutes into the film, Jimmy turns to me and he goes, This movie is really shitty, isn't it? It's really bad. I said, <laughs> yeah it's a really bad script why didn't anyone notice that the script was bad it stinks i can't even watch it joel's on the other side going what am i going to do next there's going to be this there's going to be a next project and they're going to be sitting there and there's so many lessons i learned during that movie it went 14 million dollars over budget i think i kept yeah i think and i kept saying to joel how are we allowing this because they kept screaming at us, it's over the budget. I said, how? And they, you got to understand, they built all. Walter Hill didn't want to go to Chicago. The story took place in Chicago, so they built Chicago in LA. I'm wondering what that means in a little bit. Uh, Producer Larry Gross recalls the filmmakers were optimistic prior to release. He said, we knew in our hearts that Michael was disappointing. We felt that He's talking about Michael Paré. We felt that we had compensated in making a fun, exciting, stylized world. You know, I was disappointed in one aspect, a voiceover from Tom's sister that we had, which Walter later decided to cut. Um, There were a couple of things in the narrative that I felt went out that Project probably shouldn't have stayed in. At the same time, I was... I might... I'm sorry. I was myself knocked out by what Walter and cinematographer Andrew Laszlo and our editor was doing visually on the film. And I felt, as I watched the post-production process going on, I just saw the film getting better and better, more impressive, to the point where I thought it was going to do well. And I thought that we had done what we were set out to do, created the world that we set out to create. It was a movie that was built to succeed. It's funny. The movie screened very, very well. I remember after all the first screenings, people told me that it was gonna be rich for, I was going to be rich for life. There was tremendous love and, and confidence. Uh, Westerns, graphic novels, The Searchers, Mad Max, Escape from New York, The Warriors, Grand Theft Auto, and Bruce Springsteen's Darkness on the Edge of Town are considered influences behind the movie. Streets of Fire was intended to be a first in a projected trilogy entitled The Adventures of Tom Cody with Hills tentatively titling the two sequels The Far City and Cody's Return. The Streets of Fire script concluded with the, ex- the, the expectation that Streets of Fire would be followed by The Long Night, Book 2, and The Adventures of Tom Cody. Parrae later recalled, They told me that it was going to be a trilogy. What happened was that all the people that made Streets of Fire left Universal Studios and went to 20th Century Fox. It was made at Universal, so they owned the rights to the story so it was left behind. I was told by Joel Silver that the sequel was going to be set in the snow, and the following film would be in the desert. However, the film's failure at the box office put an end to the project. In an interview shortly after the film's release, Paré also said, Everyone liked it, and then all of a sudden they didn't like it. I was worried about whether I should do the sequel or not. The film's title came from the song Darkness on the Edge of the Town, original plans were for the song to be used on the film soundtrack, but when Bruce Springsteen found out the song would be re-recorded by other vocalists, he withdrew permission for the song to be used. James Horner wrote three different original scores for the film before he ultimately left the project in favor of Cody of Walter Hill's preferred composer, Rye Cooter. Hill said that he felt humbled by the shoot, I think I thought I could handle things, didn't know how to shoot music, Music had been important in many films. I'm sorry, music had, had been important in my films. It was usually post-production. This was tough to shoot. I already had a great respect for people like Minnelli. I couldn't I couldn't seem to work it out without just putting up multiple cameras and shooting an awful lot of film. I later realized or talked to people about this In MGM in the old days. Everybody was on contract and they would rehearse for weeks. We didn't get that. We would stage it and shoot it we got the songs a lot of times just a few days before we shoot we only got this we only get the final song the structural advantage on the old studio system we didn't have it made a very inefficient shoot it made for a very inefficient shoot i don't think there were many other i don't think there was any other way to do it given the circumstances um so it's yeah there's a lot of shit going on backstage um behind the scenes of this whole thing we got a writer, director, no, not even a writer, he directed this. if We have a director who's not even confident in his own work. We've got producers and composers just trashing the film. We've got composers that are like, not really, they're dogging the writing, but then they just get more and more optimistic to the point where, I don't know. Like, like like said, people just left all of a sudden. The film came and went. Um, one thing it did, though, though one thing it did do, though, was it drew inspiration for the video games Final Fight and Streets of Rage. Um, <laughs> Even I'm familiar like with it. Final Fight. Final Fight definitely reminds me of this movie. Um, despite being oh, yeah. a huge financial bomb in the USA, the film was surprisingly successful in Japan, winning the prestigious uh, Kinema Junpo Awards. It was also an inspiration for several anime OVA, specifically the Megazone 23 franchise and the Bubblegum Crisis franchise. Secondary influence on Metal Skin Panic, uh, Gale Force, 80 Police, and some extent Akira. It also kickstarted the renewal of the delinquent genre, resulting in a long string of both anime and live action television series. So yeah, those are all my tidbits. <laughs> um, like I said, wrapped up. You know, everything was just a mess. But, you know, the film came and went. There actually was an unofficial sequel that came out more on that later on. Um, but as for the film, it starts. I mean, as for the film itself, I mean, it begins and right off the cuff, we're told the story takes place in another time, another place. And we see everyone heading to the Richmond, this uh, venue in town. The town that we shall not name, because there really isn't a name. <laughs> um, we, see, we see Ellen Aim and the attackers perform a hometown concert. First, two people we see and hear interacting are these uniformed policemen, played by Richard Lawson from Poltergeist and Rick Rossovich from The Terminator and Top Gun. Um, the attackers were real life bandmates of uh, Laurie Sargent, who provided the singing voice for Ellen Aim. Their band was called Face to Face, and they played mainly new wave. Um around the Boston area. They went on to split up in 1988. So yeah, that definitely wasn't um Diane Lane up there belting out those lyrics and shit, you know?
3: <laughs> I never thought I never thought she was. I that I didn't think there was a question about that.
2: No, not at all. So Rick Moranis shows up backstage in a pissy mood and he plays Billy Fish, who's the manager and boyfriend of Ellen. Then the opening song, Nowhere Fast, is performed in front of the entire crowd. my jam this is the song i go to all the fucking time there's no fast oh, yeah. i love this yeah. song
3: this is the best song in the movie i i i didn't know what your favorite song was gonna be but i this is easily uh my favorite song of the film it's just a great way to open up i, it, it, I remember yeah. last night i like started the movie and i was paying attention but i was like i, I was checking something something beeped on my phone and then this song started playing and it just hooked me right in i was just like oh yeah i'm gonna enjoy this Oh, yeah. Uh, plus Diane Lane is looking super like fine on stage. I, I've always had a huge crush on her and just seeing like a young version in that dress. I was just, uh, I was appreciating that as much as I was appreciating the music. Uh, but yeah, just what a great way to start it out. Just uh, I'm going to use this word a lot, but just fun. Just like a lot of energy, oh, yeah. uh, built up into it. I mean, just like you're opening up and we see like these massive sets, like, I, you know, I, I, like a music I don't video. know the whole story yeah i don't know the whole story of this movie i, I don't know anything about this movie but just looking at it, i'm like jesus this sets are like massive for this movie i mean they built like streets it looks like for this whole movie and then like they got the neon lights which are awesome so yeah. the whole art deco uh look of like the 50s and early 60s it just i it just everything just caught me right here uh, i was in right after
2: that, yeah, they did a lot for the production. I mean, it always takes place at night. It's a funny thing about that, too. I was gonna bring it up later on, but I'll talk about it right now since you brought up the production and shit. The um, they had this like massive tarp that cost over a million dollars that they just pretty much put over the entire like set on um, the Universal Backlot. So they had all that stuff constructed, like the railroad tracks and everything, to kind of resemble Chicago. Um, and then to give off that nighttime shoot, like I said, they had like this tarp that they put over like the entire set. So it was always like nighttime inside and they had to use like, you know, actual lighting. Problem with that is, you know, you have a lengthy shoot and you got that tarp up for a while. You got birds that come in there and they're laying, you know, <laughs> nests and shit around. It's, it's, it's kind of a pain and kind of a hassle even though, it, you know, I think about that, it's like, well, aren't birds supposed to be outside? I mean, it's kind of authentic, but I guess not at night Um, but yeah, like, there's you got this big hometown concert, you know, cause this is like the return to the, whatever the city is, uh, we'll just call it Richmond for the sake of name calling. And, um, yeah, and then Diane Lane, like you said, like, I, yeah, she's always been gorgeous in my eyes, too. Um, she was uh this the outsiders like yeah she's definitely a looker um although initially nervous about her age she was only 18 when she read for the part walter hill was so impressed with diane lane's work on the film that she he wrote additional scenes for her during the shoot he was reluctant to cast her because he felt that she was too young for the role he met her in new york city and she auditioned for him in leather uh, black leather pants a black mesh top and high-heeled boots he was surprised with her total, total commitment to selling herself as a rock and roll star, so she got the gig. Originally, Daryl Hannah was pursued for the role, but uh, she opted to do Splash instead. Hmm.
3: Um, worked out good for her. That was
2: a good choice. <laughs> yeah, I guess. Willem Dafoe, he shows up here as Raven, and this <laughs> gang, the bombers. <laughs> Dude, he's got this, like, greaser, like, devil haircut going on. He is
3: made for this type of role. He's like, got just, this
2: pale complex and that gritty face that he always has.
3: Like, just, so Willem Dafoe is made for certain roles. Like, recently he's been in, like, the Northman. Like, he is made for that type of role now. Like, the yes. old Willem Dafoe. Yes. Young Willem Dafoe in this, I mean, this is exactly, like, how I picture it. Like, honestly, without even having seen the movie, I like I said, I'd seen pictures and clips so as soon as I saw him, I was like, yes, this just works like he he is perfect for this. Like this is like if I had a mental image of Willem Dafoe, like a young Willem Dafoe, this would probably be it. <laughs> and then I love when they go in there and he sees Diane Lane and just the look on his face. He's like, ah, he just <laughs> charges her. Charges. Yeah, I love that shit It's like no, no explanation, no real he dialogue He tackles just
2: the like, shit out of her.
3: <laughs> he's just like you're mine <laughs> it's like come here bitch dude he just <laughs> like he on. just
2: spears the ever-loving shit out of her it's like fucking Goldberg spearing a poor opponent <laughs> in WCW JR.
3: good god almighty like, yeah. <laughs> she was just broken yeah. in half yeah I just love it I, I, you know some people might point to like this is just ridiculous like they just show up and kidnap her it is like a video it is game. ridiculous yeah, it, it's not, the story isn't the point. The point is we're listening to a cool song, you got cool visuals, you got uh, set up for this whole plot. You know, it, it's basically just there to get us to the next thing. Like, it's not, you know, right. we're not here right. like, for the complicated characters and the complicated storyline. We're here for the music and the sets and just... Uh, you know, what's to come. Like we we need to set up what's to come. It's like double dragon or streets of fire final fight. Like now we gotta get our hero in here to start fighting through the city. So that's pretty much all it's there.
2: Mm-hmm. And as for Defoe himself, I mean he's just coming onto the scene. Like year prior to this, eighty three, he had an appearance in The Hunger where he didn't even have any dialogue. He just shows up. I think he's like him and someone else are like a couple punkers who like harass, um Susan Sarandon's character at the phone booth. I think that's what happens. Uh, And then this, of course, in 84. And then the following year, 85, he played the villain in To Live and Die in LA, which is a fucking beautiful movie. I just love that movie to death. And like, yeah, Yeah. God, God, talk about that one day. So,
3: yeah, we definitely got to cover that one. That, uh,
2: That, That, yeah, that's a classic. So the spirit from hell happens, and then outside, the gang starts throwing trash cans into uh, business establishments. They're just trashing the the entire city. A couple bikers run their bikes into buildings for whatever reason. Hell, they even drag some poor slub through the fucking streets to, like, hogtide. Like, I'm pretty sure that's grounds for homicide once it's all said and done. Because that person's oh, yeah. not surviving that shit. Like, being dragged by her ankles across the pavement. Nope. Because they don't well, even stop. Get... They keep going.
3: <laughs> no, they keep going. And then you get the one cop car. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, and then the foes just, like, get them!" <laughs> and then they, like, literally change like, the, the, the windshield. It's the cops
2: that we see earlier. So uh, Richard Lawson and uh, Rick Rosevich.
3: Yeah, they come riding in in their old like shitty forties police car. It's like a Studebaker or something like that. Yeah, and and it's just getting the shit beat out of it. And I just love um, all the. It's like mayhem out on the streets because if you really watch it, it's just funny because like some of the bikers are just like falling off their own bikes, like crashing themselves. Like it doesn't even make any sense. They're launching their bikes in the
2: buildings. It's it's insane. (laughs) <laughs> like they, they, they didn't even let the band have a second song, man. Like they, uh Damn number two the, the first number two, Greer, is played by a legendary punk band Fearfront Man Lee Ving. That's his name. Lee Ving.
3: He looks familiar. I didn't know he was, but he looked familiar to me.
2: If you've ever seen uh let's see here. So let, me, let me name drop some films with him. Penelope Spears's um dudes with john cryer and um daniel, oh, yeah. daniel roebuck he played the villain he was also in clue he was the guy who gets murdered and he was in Flashdance. so
4: he
3: looks pro- familiar i i've seen him from pro- if you've, probably if all you've three s- of those
2: you've probably seen him most notably from clue because he was literally the guy who gets killed and they had to figure out who done it right he just has like he's just i don't know cut he's got a clean cut face clean shaved face and shit i don't know i'm a big fear guy i liked fear a lot when i was going through my punk phase about 20 years ago like i had a bunch of fear records and like of course fear showed up in not the actual band but one of their songs shows up in slc punk so yeah i was a big fear head back then and of course the whole comparison to john belushi and their appearance on snl and all that so yeah yeah. So yeah, front man from the, that band is the uh, Defoe's number two in this movie. So then we got Deborah Van Valkenburg, Reva Cody, Tom Cody's sister. We haven't even met Tom Cody yet. So what am I talking about? So Reva Cody, she witnesses all this go down. So she writes a old school letter, some, you know, pen to paper, to her brother Tom, asking him to come home. And then we yeah, enter. she does a
3: typewriter that's what it is she's, a, oh, she's, that's doing, right.
2: That's right. she's doing the
3: typewriter and i laughed because like it that's shows right. her typing it show it, it it has like a little like cuts of her typing and it's like all this typing and then it looks and it's like tom this is your sister
2: please come, come home,
3: home. <laughs> and it's like one fucking sentence i'm like what the fuck was she typing that whole time like i just uh, kind of laughed about it
2: she had a lot of airs so yes um then we entered michael pare making his return to the film effect. Tom gets off on a train, and then he goes to see <laughs> his sister, who's apparently, I, I don't know, does she, like, run this diner, or is she just a cook who's always there, like, all hours of the day? I, I guess she I, owns it.
3: I take it that she owns it, because, you know, why would she care otherwise? Like, why True. would she want her brother to come back and clean up the streets? Plus, she lives, like, she has a house, like, nearby, so she must be doing all right well, for herself. It's she apartment, but... Either way, like she has a, her, her her own place in Chicago, so she she must be doing all right.
2: Ah ah ah! Not Chicago. Yeah. <laughs> um. Dude, Michael Paré is so fucking young.
1: He's oh got, yeah, he, he's he got is. this
2: baby face and everything. Compared to you know, like last month and shit, we were talking about you know. Uh, um, Shit, bad moon, bad moon. I was like something moon, blood moon, new moon. That's <laughs> right, bad moon. Um, talking about that movie, and now this is like ten years prior to that. And he's just man, so young. Walter Hill heard about Michael Paré from the same agent who recommended Eddie Murphy to him for Forty Eight Hours. At this time, he was also the the only other movie that he was in was Eddie and the Cruisers. Because I came out, I believe, in eighty three um so before the siblings can even have a proper reintroduction this random gang of greasers come in and start shit and then tom (laughs) tom slaps this shit out of the leader before they fight off the rest of the greasers as this film just randomly pauses during the fight for each opening credit because they're still appearing even though we're nearly 15 minutes into this 90 minute movie
3: I know, I, I didn't realize it was like a different gang. I was like, oh man, they're not wasting any time. Like he's already fighting the gang. Yeah. But then I realized this is like the B gang. Like <laughs> they're like the shitty gang. And yeah, I, I love when he just fucking bitch slaps him. Like he's just like I'm With the butterfly knife
2: and then slaps him around with it.
3: Yeah, he's like, I'm Michael fucking par, I ain't gotta deal with your shit. <laughs> Smacks him, steals his car. I love it's the great. fact that they, they steal their fucking car and just drive it the rest yeah. of the movie.
2: So yeah, yeah, it's right. Tom drives, uh, takes a joyride through the streets with his sister, and they start. She starts to tell him about Ellen Aim.
1: When are you ever gonna grow up? Why should I? This is more fun. Let me give you some news, Tom. The bombers and this guy Raven Shattuck—they stole Ellen Aim. How the hell did
0: that
1: happen? Oh shit
2: god he's pulled over by Lawson and Rossovich, but Lawson lets him go since they've got history together I like how Lawson lets him go and then we immediately cause Rossovich an asshole as he's returned to his car <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> this is funny shit um, so back at Rivas, she tells Tom about the incident and tells him that she wants him to go get her back her Ellen Aim the ex Cut to another bar called the Black Hawk, where none other than Bill Paxton's behind the bar serving drinks with this bitchin' Pompadour haircut and I, black I had stained no teeth.
3: Idea. I did not know he was in this film at I all. Didn't <laughs> yeah, I didn't want
2: to say anything.
3: Yeah, I was like, holy shit, Billy Paxton. I love uh, that he's got like the fake uh, little black thing covering up his tooth, like he got his tooth knocked out at the fight before. <laughs> I love.
2: See, was that Paxton. was that what that was supposed to be? What was it a black yeah. stain? Because that's why I said it was a black stained tooth. I thought I didn't know because I thought about that. I'm like, are they just taking an old school method and making him look like he has no tooth there, or is that supposed to be a yeah, stain?
3: That, that's what it's supposed to be. I'm guessing it looked better before uh, it was on Blu-ray. True. <laughs> so,
2: but um, it's yeah, funny dude, seeing him here. This is '84, Bill Paxton. Like this is like Terminator. This is before Aliens. This is before. Um fuck, this is before weird science. Like the, he was very young in the industry. Um see so yeah, it was he it was cool it seeing him. Yeah, exactly. Tries telling Tom, he tried helping Ellen Aim, but was overpowered. And then we get Amy Madeline, Amy Madigan from um Uncle Buck trying Uncle to get another Buck. shot.
3: Yep, yeah, I, that's where she's from. As soon as I saw this, I was like, I know I I was like, what am I like thinking of her from? Because She's one of those where I was like, I know I haven't seen her in a ton of stuff, but I was like, I know there's a movie I'm thinking of. It took me a few minutes. And then Uncle Buck and then also Field of Dreams. Field of Dreams. She was in Field of Dreams. That was the other big one she was in, I remember.
2: And she was in the, the Dark Calf a couple years after this. Oh no, actually, ten years after this shit. She uh, it was a couple years after um Field of Field of Dreams. Um She was in Gone Baby Gone. Um
3: I don't remember for any of that shit. I just remember uncle buck obviously because i really like i really like her i really like her in this film and i really liked her in uncle buck like she definitely stands out like as playing that type of role of like the you know tougher yeah. uh tomboy type lady she plays that role uh to a t in this and in uncle buck it's just great
2: she um more recently she was in the hunt did you see the hunt
3: Oh yeah, I did see that. I don't remember her from it, but I did see. I really like The Hunt. I actually like that a lot more than I thought I was going to.
2: Yeah, her and the old Vice President from fucking House of Cards were like this old couple who had this convenience store. And they're responsible right. they're responsible yeah. for uh what's his face getting killed and then, and then all of a sudden and then the the uh, what the hell's her face comes in and kills them both. Yeah, yeah, that's that's like that. Like
3: Baronholtz or something like Ike that. Like
2: Berenholts. Or... That's that's what I was thinking yeah. of.
3: Yeah, I I liked it. You've seen The Hunt, right?
2: Hell yeah, it's a good movie.
3: Yeah, I liked it. I I remember, like when it, it came funny. out, there was a lot of people. There was a lot of people like, ah, the humor doesn't land. eh, ah, it's not so great. I was like, I don't know. Well, I thought it was funny.
2: They delayed it because of the shootings and shit like that. They delayed the film like six months, and then it came out right when the pandemic happened. The theaters were closing. So, like that, The Hunt was one of the first films that Universal just released on uh, VOD, like not even a month after its theatrical release, because they had to try to recoup money somehow because theaters were closing. Like, this came out in March 2020, right smack dab in the middle of the pandemic beginning. So, yep. Because that's how I saw it. I I rented it on VOD, and then it came out like a month later on Blu-ray, and I bought it.
3: Yeah, I, I just got it on Blu-ray because I was interested because uh, I also like Betty Gilpin. I think she's great in everything I see her in and she she was great in The Hunt. Like uh, She was oh, kick-ass.
2: She's, she's she is the, the fucking movie. MVP of that movie.
3: Oh, absolutely. But she's great in a lot of stuff I've seen her in So because I like that show Glow. It was on Netflix. Uh, and she led up with... Uh, what's that's right, where Allison she 3.
2: was from. Yeah, I saw the first season that was on. I didn't watch the other two seasons of that but I, that's right. She was on that show. 'Cause I was watching that movie The Hunt, trying to think, where the hell have I seen her before? That's where it was, glow. And um
3: But yeah, she kicks ass. I, I I love uh I love her through that whole movie. Yeah, she's great.
2: Yeah, and uh what's his face? Uh from It's Always Sunny is in that movie too.
3: I'm trying to think. There's a lot of people in that movie it popped up, I remember. I I was like, Oh, okay. <laughs> but yeah. That that surprised me. But yeah, I, I I'm totally blank that, um...
2: Dennis. Glenn Howerton's in it. Dennis from It's Always Sunny. That's who. Yeah. So, right. um... Amy Madigan. Amy Madigan, she keeps on trying to get another shot from Bill Paxton, but he tries telling her that she needs to pay her tab, and then he tells... He tells her he doesn't like her. He doesn't like her face. That's what it was. She responds with a knockout punch and then jumps behind the bar and grabs the bottle of tequila for herself and Tom. So, yeah. uh, When Amy Madigan read for the film, she read for the part of Tom's sister, actually. Um, Madigan told Walter Hill that the best part in the script was the lead character's sidekick that was called for a man and the character's name was Mendez. The part was rewritten for Madigan and renamed McCoy. As for the uh, Mendez part, it was... uh, Edward James Almost was supposed to be uh in that role.
3: Uh actually yeah that that would have worked. Yeah, I would have liked to see that too, but uh I actually like the fact that they went with uh a female in the role. Oh yeah. I, I don't know. I kind of like that. Like it, you know, it's like you got uh Pare playing this tough badass former um you know, I forget what is he? He's a veteran, right? Like he was he's in the military. Yeah.
2: He was yeah, in so he's, he's something. Yeah, Army. so
3: it, it doesn't go into a lot but you got this tough vet and then like normally you you might have like a comedic sidekick or you might have another badass to go with him another badass dude but no we got mccoy i just i love that and she's a vet too uh because i love yeah, the line when they're walking pilot. out of the bar or something yeah she was a pilot he was a pilot or something like that and when they're walking out he's like well why are you out now and she's like no more wars ran out of wars i love that line yeah, that's <laughs> like, a good so one stupid ran out of wars my name's
1: mccoy I'm a soldier. At least I was up until about a year ago. Ran out of wars.
0: Yeah? What's his spec?
1: Motor pool. Nothing fancy. But if it's got wheels, I can drive it and I can fix it.
0: That's funny. I just got out a couple months ago. Been R&R ever since.
1: Yeah? How'd you like the Army?
0: I like shooting at guns. But I didn't win no medal.
1: (laughs) Hey! Is that your car? Yeah. Nice.
0: Yeah, I know. I just picked it up.
1: Hey, Cody, it's your name, right, Cody? Yeah. You got a spare bed?
0: You want a quick tumble, huh? (laughs) Uh,
1: You may have a rough time with this one, and I don't want to hurt your feelings, but uh, you're not my type.
0: Yeah, I guess kind of figures. I ain't had much luck with women lately.
1: Yeah, well, you'll live. Something tells me that getting girls isn't exactly your problem in
0: life. Maybe some other time, huh?
1: I doubt it, but anything's possible.
2: So she sells herself as a helpful partner and then asks for a place to crash. She says she's passing through and in-between jobs, so she can't afford a hotel room. And he tells her to get in and brings her back to his sister's place to stay, but she's got to sleep on the couch. So we cut through her apartment, Reva's, when it's lights-out time, McCoy tells she he keeps tell she keeps telling Tom that she's a soldier, like she's go, like he's going to war and recruiting an army. Tom, uh, Tom looks at a younger photo of Ellen Aim, and we see her performing another song. In his thoughts, eventually he agrees to rescue Ellen for for ten thousand dollars to be paid for by Billy Fish. So the name of Rick Moranis' character Billy Fish is a reference to the translator slash sidekick Billy Fish from the Man Who Would Be King from nineteen seventy five. Just in case anybody's curious, uh, Reva and McCoy go to the diner to wait for Billy, and Tom acquires a cache of weapons, including a pump-action shotgun, a revolver, <laughs> and a lever-action rifle.
3: I was like, Jesus Christ, he's leaving no stone unturned. Going to war. He's like, Yeah, like I got a fucking like magnum revolver, I got a repeating rifle, a shotgun. I'm, I'm just like, Holy shit, what is this movie gonna be? I need
2: some, I need some <laughs> daggers some grenades a blow I mean, dart.
3: I'm just, I'm just waiting for him to have like the fucking like RoboCop gun or something like that like hold that up next or like I don't know I was just like waiting to like pull out the real heavy artillery should have had a bazooka fucking rocket launch. yeah, yeah or, like, rocket RPG. launcher exactly
2: <laughs> <laughs> um so yeah Tom meets Billy at the diner and yeah I forgot to call attention to Tom's badass trench coat thing's just so fucking nice Uh, So apparently behind the scenes, Michael Paré had real problems with Rick Moranis. He said, Rick Moranis drove me out of my mind. There's this whole wave of insult comedy. In the real world, if someone insults you a couple of times, you can smack them or punch them. You can't do that on a movie set. And these comedians walk around and they can say whatever they want. I'm just not that handy with that. Um, Comedians are a special breed. They can antagonize you and say whatever they want. And you can't do anything to stop them he's this weird looking little guy who couldn't get laid in a whorehouse with a fistful of fifties he wouldn't he would imitate me the first thing he says to me is do you just act cool or are you really cool this was the first sentence out of his mouth to me in Joel Silver's office and i was like oh this is not going to go well but he was one of Joel's dear friends and he ended up making a bunch of movies for disney i just wasn't that sharp i wasn't ready for that kind of crap
3: yeah, Michael Pare does not strike me as a type that has a sarcastic no. or... God, uh, no. ...like any of that type of sense of humor. I don't think he's the type where you can joke around with and uh, get away. He seems like a pretty uh, straight shooter.
2: And you kind <laughs> of so- see it here in this scene when they, they keep going back and forth, and then he tells Billy uh, he's going with them to their battery, where Ellen Ames has been taken by the bombers since... Apparently, Billy Fish used to live there.
0: You must be Billy Fish. Yeah. So what gives? And make it fast. My time is valuable. You want Ellen back? I'm gonna get her. You and what army?
1: I can see you two are gonna get along just fine.
0: I want ten grand. Easy. All you gotta do is earn it. I'll earn it. And you're gonna help. What told me you used to live in the Battery? I started out there. It's the shits. I wouldn't go back to that dump if you paid me. You're going. I need somebody who knows their way around. I don't think so. It's not my scene. You want your meal ticket back, get in the car. or Otherwise, the deal is off. Look, Cody, you sound pretty dumb, but nobody's that dumb. I'm the one paying you. That means you go get her, I wait here, and you bring her back to me. You smart guys. You always figure you can hire a bum like me to do your dirty work. Well, not this time. Can you really get her back? You got a better volunteer? all right i'll go she's real important to me
2: to rick moranis we gotta have this conversation because this is different this is, i'm not used to seeing rick Moranis in a straight straight ace you know no joke no no nonsensical role like he is pretty serious you know as serious as a person who you're used to be in comedic can be you know Let's put it that way yeah
3: yeah it is weird yeah, it, it, it's weird for me, too, because there's a few factors. It's like he's playing a straight role where, like, he's not a bad guy, but he's, like, you know, maybe, like, a slightly sleazy manager because, I mean, obviously he's dating, um, I forget the character's name, but Diane Lane is dating Ellen Di-
2: Aime. Ellen Aime. Aime. Ellen Aime, and it's weird. I can't just, I can't see him, it like is dating weird. her.
3: No, and they have no chemistry whatsoever, like, when they're, like, kissing on the train, You know, we haven't gotten there, but when they're kissing on the train later, like they have zero chemistry together, which, you know, I can understand like she's with him because he's the manager. He's getting her places. I get all that, but it still is kind of weird because there's the age gap, obviously. uh, And then, you know, he's just like you said, playing the straight character where every other film, it's like this lighthearted, you know, where he's making some jokes and making fun of himself and stuff like that. And you don't get any of that in this movie.
2: Well, he's also in Brewster's Millions. Yeah, he is. Because before this, prior to this film, he had Strange Bro. That was it. I mean, of course, he was on like comedy television and shit. Like, what was that Canadian show he used to be on? Um, uh, Second City. And then he had this. It's funny. This is funny, Corey. This came out on June 1st of 84. A week later, on June 8th, ghostbusters came out so (laughs) yeah i got a little film
3: you guys might have heard of you know (laughs) yeah
2: yeah of course but yeah i mean looking at his filmography it's like it's so weird seeing him in like this serious role the only other movie i can think of is parenthood you know other than that like he's just this goofy you know character and shit so anyway um back to the film. Outside, McCoy convinces Tom to cut her in for 10% in exchange for her help since she can drive anything according to what she told Tom earlier in the film when they first met. He tells him, he tells her that she works for him and does everything he says, nothing more, nothing less. So the three are driving to get Ellen Aim, Billy and, but- Billy and uh, McCoy constantly go back and forth. He calls her Butch, which I thought was pretty fucking funny. Um, then they get to this battery and they park underneath this bridge as the bombers ride their bikes past. Then they go to Torchies, this local meetup spot inside the battery. We see the blasters performing one bad stud during this entire sequence. Torchies is the name of a bar in a bunch of Walter Hill films. Uh, The Driver, 48 Hours. And also in When A Stranger Calls, which actually isn't Walter Hill, but the other two films are. Um yeah this bar compared to like the establishment back at richmond we get like this dancing female in a thong and stockings in front of all the bikers which who happens to be jennifer beale's dance double from flash dance. her name is maureen jahan um and then yeah upstairs the torchies is where uh, ellen Ames is being held captive and raven just goes up and sees her and tells her not to act up and just relax and get to know him so they can be together he throws himself on her, saying he gets excited around pretty girls, and kind of cringe, man. He just, just kind of forcing himself on her, like it rhymes with grape. I'm not gonna say it though. Uh yeah, those, it, are, that. those it, are the kind of vibes I'm getting.
3: Yeah, it's pretty. It, I could, I was when I was saying this movie isn't could, you know, they were hoping it was gonna be a big hit, but it isn't for everybody. This is one of the aspects. I'm just. Like, you know, he kidnaps this girl, like, it's not like they have a history or something like that, which I'm not saying they had to, but like, literally it sounds like, you know, Raven or William Defoe's uh, like the way he operates is he just finds a girl he likes, kidnaps her, uses her and abuses her for like several weeks, and then they can go, essentially. At least that's what he says. I mean, you know, we don't actually know if he lets the women go or not.
2: Yeah, you, but, you gonna trust him? Because I'm sure shit <laughs>
3: So, But if we go off his word, it's just pretty much you gotta have a fling with him for like a month and then, uh, you know, you might be going free at some point. So yeah, it's just that whole setup I'm just like, oh, that doesn't I mean, even back in the 80s I'm just like, oh, I don't know I feel like it was still awkward then even uh, today with uh, you know, woke culture and everything like that. I I don't think even back in the 80s this was gonna fly so... (laughs) I can see why this movie might not be for everybody. Also, I want to mention, like, what Raven's wearing. He's got like these, <laughs> uh, like, plastic-looking suspenders. It looks like he's wearing waiters almost, <laughs> doesn't it? Like, because they're like, he, they're like suspenders. On he has yes. no shirt or anything. They're like suspenders and high pants, and yes. they look plastic. Like, it looks like he's wearing waiters. Like, he's about he to go looks, out.
2: He looks like he just got done butchering a cattle or something.
3: <laughs> or he's like going to go out and. <laughs> Fly fish in the fucking stream or something like that. Like it just looks <laughs> odd. Like his getup right now. I, I just kind of I, I like literally paused and was looking at it. I'm just like, what is he wearing right now?
2: I'm like, is he wearing like a like a, a plastic uh um anyway. And then Tom McCoy and Billy are winding around around this alley, and fucking Ed Bagley Jr. shows up as his hobo out of <laughs> nowhere. It's like, Ed Bailey Jr. is in this movie. What the hell? And yeah, this is the only scene that he's in. He basically just shows up and he tells them that he knows who they're after and then reveals where Ellen Aim was taken. For information, Tom forces Billy to pay him. So he pays him and tells him to buy some soap, which I thought was pretty funny. Tom tells Billy to go wait in the car and to be ready for when they get there. He tells McCoy to take the front entrance while he goes in through the back way. Um, so all these factory scenes here that were, uh, taking place in the battery were filmed at a rotten soap factory in Wilmington, California for 10 nights. That's, if I'm not mistaken, off the top of my head, I think that's, like, the same place where they filmed Halloween 3. But I could be mistaking the the location. So McCoy casually walks through Torchies from this front, the, uh, the front entrance, and then she's got this look that sort of blends in so it makes sense so she takes the casual route and inside Blue Shadows is now being performed McCoy is approached by a biker who takes her away so she, she can get easy access to the back and she's taken to a separate room where she pulls a gun on him and knocks him out so yeah, this whole sequence here at the battery more than 50 bikers and their I'm sorry more than 50 motorcycles and their drivers were featured as the bombers and were chosen from 200 members of real L.A. based gangs, like, uh, I'm sorry, based clubs like the Crusaders and the Heathens. Uh, meanwhile, around back, Tom gains access to the roof while McCoy barges in on Raven and his gang during a card game. Tom spots Ellen Aim through a window from the roof and begins shooting bikes through his, win- from a- shooting bikes from a sh- with his uh, shotgun. And this draws all the bikers out of torches. so he goes in himself, frees Ellen Aim. Pretty fucking quickly, if you ask me. And the three managed to escape and get (laughs) back to Billy. It happens so fast. Like, you know, McCoy shows up and she barges into this card game and that's like, I guess, acts as the main distraction while he just scoops up Ellen Aim. They all hightail out. He's shooting bikes and shit from the roof causing explosions. And they just make it back to Billy Fish in the car and I'm like, how much time is left in this goddamn movie? And it's still, we're only halfway through it. I'm like, holy I shit. Know. I
3: know. As I'm watching it, I'm just like, man, this movie must be really short. <laughs> like, I mean, I it is, but yeah, yeah. No, but I mean, like, really short. I was yeah, like, what yeah. is this? Like, an hour and like 10 minutes or something like that? And I'm like, clicking on I'm like, no, it's halfway through. I was like, well, that was surprisingly easy. Like, I was waiting for a character to like make a comment about it or something.
4: <laughs> just because.
3: Right. I was expecting a little bit more. I knew the movie wasn't going to end right here, but I was expecting a little bit more resistance, I guess.
2: So they escape and they get back to Billy and Tom sends them off with McCoy, driving them away. He stays behind and continues distracting the bikers by causing explosions. Then he knocks a biker off his bike with the shotgun and gets on for himself. Raven confronts him. Tom introduces himself like a fucking dork. (laughs) He's like, uh, my name's Tom Cody. You don't know me, but you're going to be seeing a lot of me, I guess. And Raven says he'll be coming after her, and for him too, after he says that he'll be waiting.
0: Well, looks like I finally ran into someone that likes to play as rough as I do. Yeah, this must be your lucky night. I'm lucky? I guess maybe I am. And you're dumb. Real dumb if you think you can pull this off. I think you're forgetting something. I got the gun. I can get guns, smart guy, lots of them. Now, why don't you tell me your name? Tom Cody, pleased to meet you. I'll be coming for her, and I'll be coming for you, too. Sure you will, and I'll be waiting.
2: Tom takes off and meets up with the others at the Grand Strait Overpass where he told them to go and wait. And before Tom arrives, Billy tells Billy tells Ellen Aim the only reason Tom rescued her is for the money. Tom returns as McCoy explains to Billy that Tom used to be Ellen Aime's boyfriend. And this is when Ellen Aim follows Tom but she's still holding back from him while Billy and McCoy go back and forth once again about their past together. Tom and Ellen's past together, not... McCoy and Billy. Ellen and Tom have an argument about what she was told by Billy in the last scene and uh, yeah, I have written in my note for some reason that Rick Moranis was pretty unhappy making the film himself because he wasn't allowed to improvise like his role here is to just follow the script you're being paid the right. you're being paid to speak my dialogue god damn it so that is basically that uh so they head out to the streets as we get this sort of music video for the song Sorcerer while they're all walking the streets. I like this scene a lot. I like this song too. Um, and then we're introduced all of a sudden to E.G. Daly, Baby Doll, who introduces herself as this big fangirl of Ellen Ames and they're, uh, she also suggests that they get off the streets because all the police are after them from the fire started by the, started by torchies So, Tom spots this bus coming around the corner and walks out in the street in front of it so that it stops for him. And it's this bus with this singing group known as the Sorrells that are driving in by the lead Sorrell Bird played by Stoney Jackson from a couple other Walter Hill films. Um, they were Wild Bill and Trespass. Uh, we're given pushback at first, or they're given pushback at first, rather. But eventually I'll let them on after Tom Obviously, shows him his gun which gets Bird to exchange his, he, change his entire demeanor. Um, oh, and McCoy says she's driving, because that's what McCoy does. So also in this Sorrell's group are actors McKelty, Williamson, Grand Bush, and Robert, Robert Towson. So we've got this singing group that consists of Bubba Gump, Agent Johnson, Meteor Man, and the lead dancer Michael Jackson's Beat It video, for all of you keeping score at home.
3: Um... <laughs> little bit of an odd bunch,
2: (laughs) and then um, E.G. Daily. She said that it was a very frustrating thing for me to not sing in the film because Diane Lane was doing all this. Diane Lane was doing all the singing, and I was a singer too. And I was like, ah, it's like, all right, quit your bitching, all right. So the Sorrells they eventually figure out that they're riding with Ellen Aim, so they all get fanboy on her and shit, asking her for a spot on the upcoming gig. I'm Bird. Uh, these are my associates. This is Lester, my man BJ, and that's Reggie.
4: Uh, 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 Aren't you Ellen?
0: A? That's right, it's yeah. Ellen.
4: Hey, Ellen. Um, you guys need an opener or anything? I mean, we're good. Yeah, yeah we are good. Huh? We just can't seem to
1: get anything going.
4: Hey,
0: look what gives. I handle the management and the cook. You Now you guys just shut up and leave Ellen alone.
2: So, oh. what did he say? Look, I know how tough it can be getting the right gig.
0: Baby, you
2: don't even begin to know. Man, what did I tell you guys? Will you just cool it? Then the bus gets a flat. It needs to be fixed. So McCoy stops and works on changing the tire. And we see Ellen Aim telling Baby Doll that someone else writes all her songs that Billy either buys or steals for her. And she sings. All she does is sing. Speaking of Billy, he confronts Tom and tries to act like a tough guy, telling Tom that you know things have changed since he's been away and that Ellen Ames belong Ellen Ames belongs to him and since uh he does things for her things that he could never do so he should get used to this picture now he sounds all threatening like Rick Moranis trying to act tough in this serious role he's doing it's too much like it's, it's still funny I still laugh at it like he's just like I'm like dude you're Rick Moranis like you couldn't fucking punch your way through a wet paper bag You know,
3: I don't know. Michael Parry could probably fucking punt him 20 yards in this movie. Yeah, exactly.
2: (laughs) So it's like, call your jets. All right, buddy. So the, uh, tire gets fixed and they're back on the road and the Sorrells do this doo-wop to the charm of Ellen aim. And eventually they get pulled. They, they, that's right. They get, they stop at this police checkpoint and McCoy acts like a tour bus driver by for the Sorrells on the way to a late night gig. While Billy acts as their manager, demanding that they be let through at a hefty cost, which they initially accept, but then change after calling it a bribe.
1: Hey guys, how's it going? I'm the bus driver here for the Sorrells. Ran away to play a gig at an after hours joint. The Sorrells, the singers, you know them, right?
0: No, never heard of them. You know what's going on here, don't you?
1: Look, man, all I know is we're running real late.
0: Well, babe, some outfit just broke into the battery and burned half of it down. Really? I'll oh, knock off the crap, will you? As far as I'm concerned, anybody that goes into the battery and does some damage deserves a medal. Well, let me tell you how we look at it. Look, cut this shit, OK? You guys got a big job to do. We're trying to get where we're going. Now, let us through. Or you want to come to some kind of financial arrangement. Well, what do you think, Harry? Well, I think what we got here is a model citizen. I know you guys talk my language. Keep it coming. Just take a big bite. That's right. like to see there's some integrity left in the force. You know, you're just a little too anxious to uh, bite us off. Spade musicians and a big wad of money. musicians? All right, everybody off the bus.
2: So this cop here, this is Peter Jason. This is like a John Carpenter regular. Like, a lot of people just start randomly showing up in this movie. And I like how Billy's handing them all the money and the keeps, He's like, keep him coming. <laughs> he keeps his hand held out. I think we've talked about Peter Jason before Um, he was awesome I don't know
3: the name's not ringing a bell but uh, I'm sure if I saw him I'd um, remember
2: well he's been in a bunch of other films like um, well I said he was in a bunch of uh, Carpenter films he was in They Live um, In the Mouth of Madness Village of the Damned Wild Bill Mm. that that wasn't that was Walter Hill He's also in a bunch of Walter Hill movies too, like The Driver, Forty Eight Hours. Um Yeah, he's, he's got a face, you know. And he, he you know, the Buchnophobia is another movie he was in. He was Master Boyd in Mortal Kombat. Um, <laughs> anyway, anyway, um he's the cop and i always every time he shows up in the movie, I'm always like, Ah, oh, that guy. I fucking love that guy. So the group ditches the bus and avoids the backup that was called in by jumping on a train that I'm sorry. The group ditches the bus and avoid the backup that was caused by jumping on a train that they're headed back. That's heading back to Richmond. So they're on this train, and on there, McCoy confronts Aunt Ellen Aim about Tom, which irritates her. So she goes and sits next to Billy. And I can't take Billy calling Ellen Aim babe. Like it's just too much for Rick Moranis, dude. Like, come on, babe. Try to act tough. Like, I'm not used to seeing this kind of role for him, dude. I'm not. It's weird. No. Um, oh no, this, is,
3: this is where I... Like, it's already creepy and weird that they're together. But then, like, the chemistry, I was like, ah, oh, it just... It doesn't quite work. Like, I, I know that she's probably with him just for her career or whatever. But it's still, either way, I'm like, there is, like, no spark of chemistry whatsoever between these two. It just comes off as a little no, odd to me. It's
2: absolutely zero chemistry. Like... I have no idea what the hell she sees in him we know what he sees in her but I don't know dude like this I don't know it's like the one section of the movie that doesn't make any sense to me like money or no money he still risked his life to save her but after her own boyfriend came to him about it like why is she so disgusted by him after all of this like I said it's the one thing I don't agree with in relation to the film itself you know what I mean
3: yeah no I understand yeah I mean like I said the whole plot is just like like why I, I you know I don't gonna even get, like, yeah I don't even get why like his sister wrote him like why does she care if this singer got kidnapped I I don't know like you know like it, it doesn't really make much sense when you think about anything but yeah I, I don't know why she's so disgusted with him I don't know he went in wrist his neck got you out of there he so didn't keep getting uh, raped by Willem Dafoe in a <laughs> trash bag so yeah. I mean, You know, it's not all bad.
2: Oh, man. Like, he's wearing this, like, fucking, like, plastic apron, like, that says, kiss the chef. So, her her and Billy are disgusted with Richmond. So, they leave the station, along with Baby Doll to go rest and eventually move on from there. It's like Billy's going to have himself a three-way with Diane Lane and E.G. Daly. Speaking of E.G. Daly, so, she's, like, in a lot of... uh, Recently, she's been in a lot of, uh... Rob Zombie stuff. Um, A lot of people probably know her from her voice work. She voiced Tommy Pickles on Rugrats. She voiced uh, Buttercup on the Powerpuff Girls. She voiced Bam Bam in the live action Flintstones. She was in Valley Girl, this. Devil's Rejects, like I said. PB's Big Adventure was another one she was in.
3: I always Mm -hmm. remember Devil's Rejects when (laughs) she's talking about giving hand jobs and stuff. I was yeah. like, oh, this is weird yeah. to Tommy Pickles talk about
2: this. And more recently, I bought this on Blu-ray. Uh, one Dark Night from Tom McLaughlin. She was in that, along with Meg Tilly and Adam West. You know, she's in a bunch of 80s stuff. Uh, Bad Dreams is another one. Lover Boy with Patrick Dempsey. Just, like I said, lots of stuff that she's popped up in. She's got this face. She's got this voice. Um, I believe she was also in Dutch. With uh our boy Ethan Randall. Or not, that's what he was credited as in that movie, but it's Ethan Embry. But for some reason he he was credited himself as he, when he was a kid as Ethan Randall. I'll never understand that. But uh anyway, leaving returns in a movie, he's outside the station on his bike, smirking at Tom and the rest back at the station. So the only two cops we ever see in this fucking town, Rick Rosevich and Richard Lawson again, approach him outside and then we get this weird scene transition to Willem Dafoe's Raven talking to Richard Lawson, saying he wants Tom and he's only going to bring in a couple of his men with him. I want Tom
4: Cody. I want to nail that son of a bitch's head to the sidewalk under that marquee that says LNA it, And just to prove to you, I'm going to be a nice guy. I'm coming in with just two of my men, after I take care of Cody, there'll be no more trouble. Do your job man, keep the peace.
2: Cut back to the diner on a rainy day, there's just Tom McCoy and Reva hanging out, McCoy just wants to go out and do something but Tom, assuming she just means going to collect their money. Yells at her and says that he'll have her money for her later. Starts an argument between the two, which she thinks that's all Tom thinks of her. So she's got to defend herself. McCoy takes off. So Reva confronts her brother about the way he's acting. Turns out he's still pissed off about Ellen, Amon about and Billy. And then this is when Richard Lawson comes in to talk to Tom about the recent proposition offer. Tells Tom he's ordering to leave town so we can wait for Raven to late, arrive later and. Throw him in jail instead of watching two maniacs playing a game and fighting about personal order. Tells Tom he was surprised he saved Ellen to Aim and wants him to surprise him again by not being on that by being on that train out of town tonight. I like that last line. Um. Yeah. Tom goes to the hotel where Ellen and Billy are staying, along with Baby Doll, and collects his reward. He takes only Billy's. He takes McCoy's cut and throws the rest back at Billy. And then tells Ellen that there was a time he would have done anything for her, but no more. As Tom Storms out, Ellen follows and the two embrace in the rain. And this is like some old 40s-50s romance here, them kissing out in the rain. I like oh, yeah. this, I like this scene. It's, it's, it's a nice shot of them two. What can yeah, I say? I mean, I'm a sucker.
3: Yeah, it, it's a cool shot, but it's definitely one of those where it's like uh, this whole setup was built around this shot. It wasn't the other way around where it's like you know oh we got some cool ideas and, you know this is how we'll do it oh we'll have them kiss in the rain it's like no this is definitely walter hill's like we'll kiss in the rain but well, why are they kissing in the rain what are they doing i don't know we'll figure that shit out later like let's just have them kiss in the rain that's what i want well, we <laughs> come like, to the next
2: <laughs> scene and they're both soaking wet in bed and she tells him <laughs> that she wants to go with them and be with them and he goes to see mccoy at the, the black hawk and he pays her her money he says that she did good and apologizes they do a shot together. They have a heart-to-heart about Ellen Aim while walking home. Tom, Ellen, and McCoy leave on a train together. But then after the train stops, Tom says he's got to go do something back in Richmond. And then he just straight knocks Ellen Aim the fuck out with this right hook and tells McCoy to get as far away from there as she can. Like, <laughs> dude, I did not see this shit coming. Like, he's like, oh, yeah, there's something I got to do. <laughs> Wham! And just knocks her the fuck out, dude. Like yeah, she might be concussed.
3: Cold cocks her. He just cold cocks the shit out of her. She fucking knocks her just
2: out. very well be concussed after that. So yeah, uh, she runs till she hits the bayside, and then she can hang out there. Turns out the bombers have blocked all the routes to Richmond. Out of Richmond, next day, Raven and his men, his two men, arrive in Richmond and encounter the two cops. Who inform Raven there will be no battle? That Tom's gone. Turns out Raven lied about who he was bringing and sounds off an air horn along with this little swivel that he does with his lip. That I'm just, I don't know. He's staring at the two cops and he's just. He's got this little quibble in his lip. It's perfect. So Billy runs outside and confronts Raven himself before he's quickly knocked out by leaving. Uh, Tom then pulls up. And the two have themselves a climactic sledgehammer duel.
3: As one does. (laughs) Just waiting for Triple H to show up.
2: I like how he had these, like... They're kind of like weird sledgehammers with these, like, narrow tips. It's kind of like... They look like a
3: miner, like something a miner would use or something like that. Yeah, but not
2: sharp. It's like like a pickaxe, but the other end and not the sharp end. But it's on both ends. Anyway, Tom eventually defeats Raven... He just fucking pushes him down to win the fight. It just and he I love wins by so he's like <laughs> <laughs> It's like, like the you're playing poke a, of doom.
3: Yeah, it's like you're playing the video game and like it's like finish him and it, you just you punch you just him fucking punch him and he just falls over. It's like so funny, but it, it's so well done because like at that point they had beaten the shit out of each other because yeah. Tom had already won. Like he had the sledgehammer raven didn't like you know he had already won and he threw down the sledgehammer he's like all right let's end this and then will the of course or raven can't fucking lose so he tackles him right tackles the shit out of him by the way like they fall into people it's great and they keep fighting and i just love the fact that like tom just has him beat so bad but raven just does not want to go down he's like literally fucking out on his <laughs> feet and then tom just fucking walks up and pushes him down i it's love it like yeah you're done man you're done
2: so then, yeah, he's, uh, carried away by the bombers. And then, um, let's see here. So, yeah, due to the choreography and setups in between takes of every scene, the four-minute showdown between these two took a considerable amount of time to shoot. Michael Parry estimated it as four weeks. Willem and I shot that for two weeks, and then Walter shot it for another two w- w- weeks with the stunt guys. That whole scene was a Walter thing. He had to do something like that, especially after what he had done in Hard Times, his first film. Um, This is a good time to mention that the film was originally rated R, but then it was edited to get Universal's desired PG rating. The film was screened as an R rating, and then they did a bunch of trims, a number of um, F-bombs, that chick that was dancing at the bar actually removes her top during the dance Cody kills Raven with a knife and a different ending altogether with the credits rolling over Ellen's final number so yeah a lot of cuts were done Um, will we ever see that cut? doubt it but then we're treated to this Sorrell's performance of Dan Hartman's I Could Dream About You at the Richmond Theater so yeah fun true story so I saw this film, like I said, earlier earlier this year, like I'd, I'd say it was like around March or so like that, like it's springtime. And this, this scene happens that I'm talking about that I could dream about you. Dude, when I was working at Walmart, this song played like fucking 10 times every day on their fucking Muzak player. <laughs> So That's I this, and I, I I never knew who it was from or nothing like that. So like this all of a sudden this song starts playing and I'm like, you've gotta be shitting me. I can't escape this song. No <laughs> No more
4: timing these tears that fall from my eyes
2: so we get this performance and they're essentially opening for the attackers or Ellen aiming the attackers because then you know Billy's is uh, managing the Sorrells and then Tom says goodbye to both Billy and Ellen and then Ellen and Tom have this one last moment together
1: guess you're just going to cut out huh
0: yeah you know me yeah I
4: know you you're the guy with the right hook Is that it? Is that
0: all you have left to say? Look, I know you're going to be going places with your singing and stuff. And I'm not the kind of guy to be carrying your guitars around for you. But if you ever need me for something, I'll be
2: there. Nothing happened earlier. Like, she does call him the guy with the right hook, but still, it's ludicrous to think that she's so willing to speak to him or even say goodbye after he knocked her out cold. Like, shouldn't she be laying down backstage with some ice or being treated for a concussion anyways, not having a fucking crowd performance? She's just not sporting any shiners, nothing. But regardless, Tom tells her if she ever needs him for something, he'll be there. They kiss, and they eventually. he eventually departs with his new P.I.C. and McCoy. And yeah, this is like a Casablanca ending. Like, the film... Lovers go their separate ways. She leaves with a man who can help, but she doesn't realize love. Or, she really doesn't love him. And then, he goes off into the horizon with a new friend. It's like Casablanca. So, we get this one last performance of Tonight is what it means to be young. To end the film and yeah that is Streets of Fire from 1984 Walter Hill uh, real quick before we get into anything else I have to talk about Road to Hell Road to Hell is an unofficial sequel that came out 10 years ago it has Michael Parag returning as Tony Co- Tom Cody and um, uh, Deborah Van Valkenburg as Reva his sister huh. Ellen Aim was recast McCoy recast a bunch of people baby doll recast um apparently they're he's a murderer he finds this girl and they become like it's like a natural born killers element like the film i saw the trailer the other day it's like really fucking weird and out of this world the film was directed by um steven pune who recently passed i'm sorry a- albert pune who recently passed away like last week or so he was the director of cyborg nemesis sword and the sorcerer uh a lot of people in the the hard commu- uh, the film community were talking about it but uh yeah he directed it. it came out in 2008 it's free on youtube so yeah road to hell it looks bizarre apparently tom cody's turned into a serial killer he murdered ellen aim and now he's going like natural born killer style cross country with this young broad and it's yeah I don't know sounds weird probably never gonna (laughs) watch it so but like I said that is streets of fire and now we can talk about box office receipts in the operational funds box we will deposit 250,000 American dollars
0: you take it out we put more in I want receipts
2: Film premiered June first, eighty four from Universal Pictures. It opened up across eleven hundred and fifty screens, two point four million. It's all gross opening weekend, fifth place. Second weekend, one point two million, ninth place. dropped fifty point four percent. I'm not mistaken. This was the same weekend or around the same weekend as Bad to the Future. So maybe it shouldn't have released it around the same time as all these other big summer films. 84 um, is
3: a tough year, man. That That is a big year for movies. <laughs> yeah, it
2: was cool. You went lying. Total gross, $8.1 million against a $14.5 million budget. So, did not make money. Like I said at the top of the episode, it was a bomb. It was a fucking bomb, unfortunately. So, yeah. Um, let's hear about what some people else but Let's hear about what others had to say and get to the critics' corner. <laughs> Alright, Streets of Fire has a rotten tomato score of 68% off of 28 reviews, with a critical consensus that says Streets of Fire may sometimes buckle under the strain of its ambitious fusion of desperate genres, but Walter Hill's bravura style gives this motorcycle musical fuel to burn. It's got a meta score of 59 out of 100. It's got no cinema score. Ebes gave it three and a half, I mean, no, 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 I read that wrong, three stars out of four, said the movie is right on the rock and roll, but the alternative time and place are mysteriously convincing, especially if, like me, you believe the most beautiful post-war American cars were Studebakers, he also wrote that the language is strange too, it's tough, it's not what. it's not with 1984 toughness, it sounds like the way real mean guys sound after uh, being talked to in the late 50s with only a few words different, as if this world evolved a slightly different language. Janet Maslin from the New York Times criticized the film's screenplay as being misogynistic and cr- problematically crude. Not sure I would agree with that, but to each their own. Gary Arnold wrote in the Washington Post that as romance leads, Paré and Lane are pretty much a washout and that most of the action climaxes are treated as such throwaways that you begin to wonder if they bored the director. In an essay for film comment, David Shute wrote, It's probably impossible not to enjoy the movie. No director holds a candle to Hill for sheer visceral expertise. But the moods didn't linger. It's such a hard-shelled picture that it barely has moods. Joel, I'm sorry, um... Jake Cole from Slant Magazine said Walter Hill's 1984 film combines everything from CD bars, street fights, motorcycles, beefy heavies, and tough dames to a, in a smorgasbord of tawdry, moral, flouting cliches that distills decades of imagery that represents youth in cinema. That was a mouthful. Uh, finally, Gary Arnold from the Washington Post said that the, the, the disappointing thing about Streets of Fire is that it can't deliver on the promise of a tangy, sexy evening of stimulation. The failure is aggravated by the exorbitant scale of the production, which seems much too lavish for an atmosphere of B-movie squalor. Either I wrote that wrong, or he fucking wrote that review wrong, because it didn't sound right coming out of my mouth. Anyway, you know, overall, from what I've just listed down, with the exception of Ebe's near-flawless rating, with 3 out of 4 stars, which is I'm still kind of surprised he gave this movie that many stars. But uh, with him aside... I mean, you got pretty much a mixed bag of, of thoughts. Um, basically, what I've gathered from it all... Is all the heavy-hitting... Um, reviewers... Pretty much took their guns and called it what it was. Did not like it for what it was. Stuff like that. And then you've got like this... You know... Caught audience who... Like, you and I live in today's world. We look back at it like, how can you not like this movie? You know? So, you know, that's that. Um, We can move on to more about our thoughts in the form of pros and cons. Before I take on any job,
4: I look at it the same way as it takes to make the thing. Positive, positive.
2: Versus negative. Now you mix a little bit of this with a little bit of that, and you get a reaction. Uh, Corey, kick it off. What are your pros?
3: Uh, my number one pro is just the look of this film, uh, and that can be broken down into a couple different categories. Uh, the production design and sets is second to none. I mean, you just—you don't have to know a lot about movies, but just looking at it, you know, you can tell it's shot on a back lot but just the size and scope of what they built and just how awesome it looks. I mean, it's just like amazing. I did, you know, maybe some people roll their eyes or like, I'd rather see a realistic portrayal. I'd rather see him shoot on location. I don't know for a movie like this. I'm fine with it. I think it's awesome. They built like these huge elaborate sets and it just looks so awesome. Like, I, I mean, that was like one of the first things that stood out. Uh, also just the cinematography and just with all the neon lights um, the costume design—I I just love the look of all the characters. I mean, Michael Pare looks badass with like his old school fucking suspenders and <laughs> loose shirts and stuff like that. I love uh, Willem Dafoe and the biker gang and the greaser look. So uh, all the costumes. Diane Lane in that opening scene with her dress—just like it, it, just all works. Like visually, this movie's a treat. Uh, you know, like I said, from production design to costumes to lighting and cinematography. Uh, It's just awesome to look at every second. I was just looking at something else in the corner or uh, rewinding it. It was just a visual treat. Uh, My next pro has to be the music. I mean, like that opening song, especially. Oh, man, that just hooked me right in. Uh, You know, I mean, does this movie have a ton of memorable songs? in it? No, not really. Like there's only one that really stands out to me. But uh, that being said, I mean, I it's still pretty good. I I really enjoyed that opening song uh, that they had playing. It really hooked me in. Um, and then uh, my last pro is the cast. Honestly, I I know uh, some people earlier were talking about Michael Pari being disappointing. I think he's great in this. I mean, I'll I'll talk about more of it later in a different segment. But um. He's awesome. I love Willem Dafoe. I think, like I said, he's made for it. Diane Lane is great. Uh, Rick Moranis, eh. You know, I don't really blame him. I I just think it's just the part he plays. I mean, it is kind of cool seeing him as like this, you know, somewhat sleazy type manager. Uh, But it's definitely not my favorite. Bill Paxton hamming it up is fucking awesome. I love him. So just the cast from top to bottom. Uh, McCoy is the, you know, the female tough guy sidekick. Uh, She's great so yeah I, I I think the cast is definitely a strong suit here I, I even though you know they've, like you said Michael Pari. some people are split on that I don't know I think everybody works well in the film so those are my pros
2: yeah mine are you look we use this word a lot this episode but this is a fun watch you know I, I had to throw it out there as my first pro first and foremost um you know, mine kind of echoes yours Corey. honestly the cast um the soundtrack although i you know i think i like the soundtrack a little bit more only because you know I, I fucking listen to it so much that song sorcerer is great um nowhere fast you know just a lot of great songs on the soundtrack um i really like the fictional setting and the like the like the the biker era aesthetic or whatever you want to call it um this it's this whole like industrial city chicago look you know it's it's just this real raw look and feel to to like just uh the production design and everything and um yeah it just everything just works the cast like like I'm, i'm gonna actually i'm gonna double down on the cast like there's so many people that pop up even if it's for one scene like you know, this is 84, so a lot of these people were, like, real young and new and, and breaking into the scene. Some of them now are no longer with us. Others are, you know, just people who have been, they're like, I, I can't think of the word for it. But you know what I'm getting at. Um, and yeah, that's, that's pretty much it. Like I said, mine kind of echoes, pretty much echoes yours, Corey. I mean, great minds think alike, so... Um, we can move on to cons now. What are your cons?
3: Well, I mean, my top con has to be the plot. I mean, you know, going into this type of movie, the plot is never going to be the focus. It's never going to be the reason you watch the film. I mean, just the synopsis, like when you pull it up on IMDb, a singer's kidnapped by a biker gang and, uh, you know, a woman recruits her brother to save her. Like, it just sounds ridiculous and it is. And, you know, I'm not expecting, uh, you know like natural uh thick uh diverse dialogue i'm not expecting a complicated well thought out plot but i am expecting at least some basics and yeah some of it just falls flat for me uh you know especially like i said the one of the biggest things for me is like i really didn't understand why uh she was calling like why i i just don't understand the connection between the two of like why is she calling Tom back to save the singer? Like, why does that even affect her? Like, she, you know, this woman it was a diner. Like, I don't know, just that whole thing of like, I gotta call my brother. Well, in I to think save it's because day. of
2: the fact that they used to date. Like, he would know. You know, she would have wanted him to know that his ex.
3: Yeah, yeah it's pretty history. loose.
2: It's loose. Yeah, yeah, I know.
3: It's just like I don't know. I think you could come up with a slightly better reason as to why, uh, you know, you would have him come back. Uh, I don't know, just I'm not expecting anything great, like, but just a little bit more. I think just a little bit more thought about the plot and some of the writing, I think, would have went a long way. Uh, You know, the fact that, uh, like you said earlier in your tidbits, the filmmakers knew that the plot was shit. They're like, well, it's about everything else, which, yeah, it is. But, you know, you kind of need a somewhat steady foundation to build off of, even if it's really basic. (laughs) You know, you just need something to build off of. So that would be uh, my number one. Um, my number two is, uh, and, you know, maybe we I could have talked about this during cancellations, but it's a little creepy watching Defoe, you know, with the kidnap lane, especially since she's so young. I think that plays a part into it as well. You know, I'm not saying it would be better if she was older,
4: <laughs>
2: but
3: uh, just, you know, watching it, I'm just like, that's, you know, because she looks really young. I didn't know her exact age, but I knew she was really young.
2: 18.
3: In the film. And I'm just like, oh, man, this, you know, it, it's a pretty serious thing. And they're treating it you're like this movie's fun. Great. Let's keep going. Next song, you know, a fight in the street fun. But then, you know, we're talking about rape. So <laughs> it's just like those two kind of don't go together. And, you know, I, and I know this isn't like the only film that's had something like that. Like it's, you know, fairly cliche, like a video game, like the biker gang kidnaps your girl. But this, uh, this this is where
2: the whole misogyny element comes in and I i not agree with it for that for just this particular scene but overall like I don't see this movie as like misogynistic yeah, I see I, I definitely either. see this scene as 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 it but not the entire film
3: I, I almost could have did without the scene honestly like I uh, yeah. it would almost be like Cut out it. of sight out of yeah. mind Yeah like it would almost be out we of sight out of mind We didn't need
2: we didn't need to see it it doesn't yeah. it serves no purpose it doesn't gain anything you know, it's it's just there's no need for it. It's weird. Right.
3: So those are, uh, you know, my main cons for the film.
2: Um, you know, honestly, it's really minor for me. I wish Bill Paxton had more to do in this movie, but it was great seeing him. But less like just, you know, and Rick Moranis in a grounded role. As much as I love seeing Rick Moranis in this movie. Like he's just too serious and it doesn't work for me like it's i don't know it's it's something like he's just trying to be something that he's not like he's just like this little weasel squirrel acting all big and bad and shit because he has money it's like dude Paul Ray's about to bitch slap this shit out of your mouth so stop it um But yeah, other than that, I mean, maybe sometimes and obviously what you were just referring to that scene, which we'll get into myself um, coming up. But sometimes I guess Paré kind of looks bored a little bit on screen. I don't know. It's minor. I'm obviously reaching. So we'll move on. Um, What do you know? Modern cancellations.
4: Someone just, someone, just someone just got canceled, someone just got canceled, someone just got canceled, I wonder what
2: they did. So I guess we're going to double down on this scene, since we literally just talked about it, because I know that you and I pretty much had the same answer for this one, because I think that you and I are canceling Raven, without a doubt. Um, and yeah, wouldn't faze me one bit, especially after the way he throws himself on Ellen Ame after she's being held captive, like, just good riddance.
4: Yeah,
3: um, I mean, there's really two, like Billy Fish as well. I mean, I feel like he would get Weinsteined at some point. Really? You know, for uh, uh, dating, maybe. dating such a young uh, singer like that. That's. And, you know, I, I feel like at some point there's going to be a Me Too movement say. against Billy Fish. I, I don't yeah. know. I don't know. He, I don't trust him. He's uh he's this little Canadian guy. And he's, he's a fishy all, fella. Yeah. Yeah, he's got the hot uh, singer he's dating. So, I don't know. I feel like he wouldn't be too far behind Raven there in that instance. You
2: know, You're Raven taking... might
3: be already in jail. Billy Fish might be on trial uh, soon after. <laughs> so, we don't know.
2: Oh, man. Talk about a strange brew. All right. Well, then let's move on to Mulligan moment.
4: If you had to do it all over again, would you make the same choices?
2: All right. You know what? For a rock and roll fable, the movie doesn't have enough original music. Like, there's like, <laughs> there's like three or four scenes with a musical number, and then that's it. Like, there's a lot of different creative ways it could be done here. Like, that's what I would change. Like, the the music in general, you know, rock and roll fable. We got a rock one. I ain't talking like Rock of Ages bullshit, but <laughs> you know, like maybe add a couple more tunes in the film and. And you know, really deliver that message, you know, rock and roll fable. So that's what I would change. That's my Mulligan moment.
3: Yeah, I had to because uh, I had a feeling it might be similar. So yeah, my number one was definitely music. I was a little more, I was a little surprised because you know, obviously, musicals like not every word has to be sung or sang. You know, like I understand, like you have a song and then you have dialogue for a while, but this film. Uh, there was a little too much of, like, just the generic rock and roll background track <laughs> in the movie. You know what I'm talking about. I It's know. not just, like, the the little generic um, music playing. And I'm just like, yeah, like, that first song is a banger. A couple of the other songs are pretty good and enjoyable. But, uh, yeah, I, I wish there was maybe, like, at least one or two more songs that were kind of on the same level is that first one. I, I think the movie would have benefited a little bit more from that. I forgot to mention
2: enough- real quick. I forgot to mention earlier that the song sorcerer that pops up in this movie, if I'm not mistaken. I believe that was either written or co-written by uh Stevie Nicks from Fleetwood Mac.
3: Huh? Okay. Yeah. I didn't know that.
2: And it totally sounds like a Stevie Nicks song. So but anyway, um, back to what you were saying.
3: And, yeah. Another one uh, that I would change is I, we mentioned it before I just think they get I think they just get Diane a little too easily like I think they just
2: it happens so fucking early in the movie it's like wait a minute how much time we got left
3: I don't even care that it happens I just wish maybe there was a little bit more interaction between uh, Raven and Tom or just a little bit more resistance Mm -hmm. where you know like oh we barely made it out of there you know we might want to leave town or something like that just a little bit more of a showdown to tease out to the very ending because the ending doesn't disappoint i really like the sledgehammer fight and the final yep. showdown i think th- i think that holds up well uh but i think you need a little bit more here in the middle i because literally i think i think what happened was la- i was watching it last night and my son woke up because uh, i was watching it probably like you know 12 30 one o'clock it was pre- it was pretty late i was getting i was watching this and going to bed <laughs> and my son woke up and i um I didn't pause the movie i just walked away took my headphones off walked away put him back to bed It was like five minutes later i walked back and i'm like what the hell they got her already like yeah. <laughs> at that point they're like <laughs> on the bus and obviously i rewinded back to the point i was but i was like what the hell happened i was like how did that happen
2: so quick mm-hmm.
3: i'm expecting to like see him in a knockdown drag out fighter like getting chased <laughs> by a million motorcycles Wait, him not getting or- captured
2: himself or something
3: yeah, they're on a tour bus. I'm just <laughs> I'm just like, what? Did I miss something? Was I gone longer? So that would be my other one. I, I just think you need a little bit more, uh, you know, of a showdown there in the middle to kind of build up for the ending.
2: All right, well, then finger looking good.
0: Finger looking good.
2: All right. Ellen Ames entire rescue scene not even seen, but the whole sequence, you know, as early in the film as it is, like, it's still a highlight for me. Um, you know, it's 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 definitely where the, the, the majority of the action takes place. I like the whole uh, Paré just blowing shit up, just nonsense, just happening just so they can get this girl out of the town. And, um, you know, either that or if Koya might even be a tie because like, you know, the more I think about it after talking about it with you, that fight at the end is pretty good. Um, pretty honestly, no, it would probably be my my initial answer, and that is uh the entire rescue sh- sequence that takes place inside the battery. Um you know, it's it's a fun sequence. I like it a lot. So that's my answer.
3: Yeah, this was a tough one for me. There's two scenes, uh, and you know, they're opposite sides of the movie. So the ending scene with the knockdown drag out fight with a sledgehammer where it's, you know, time to play the game. And they start hitting at each other. Uh, that was pretty entertaining. Uh, and I really loved it. But I think the beginning edges it out a little bit for me. Just I just think it sets it up so well.
2: Yeah, just the, beginning, the beginning is really fucking good. You it might just, be right.
3: It, it just has so much energy. And the song is just so great. Like, honestly, yeah. I'm going to go back and listen to this song. Like, it's not just a one-and-done where I watch the movie. Uh, And I'm not the type that does that. I don't listen to a lot of uh, music from movies or, uh, you know, scores or anything like that. Like, it's pretty rare that I do that. So, But this is one I'm going to seek out because that's how much I enjoyed it. I just love seeing the sets for the first time, the energy, the concert. Willem Dafoe just charging the fucking stage and spearing people. Uh, Yeah, I, I just love the whole thing. I... I think it sets the movie up perfectly. I think it's exactly kind of what I was imagining for the movie. Uh, so yeah, just it's hard to recreate that energy and that fun in the beginning. So th- to me, that edges it out slightly uh, to the ending. I mean, the ending is just like Michael Parry and Willem Dafoe. Like they just that scene's awesome too. Like Pare, like it's fucking machismo in that scene, is unmistakable. But yeah, the the beginning edges it out a little bit for me.
2: All right, let's move on. Got a couple more categories left. Like this, try that.
4: You can with this, or you can get with that. this, you can get with that. You can, with, you can with this, or you can get with that.
2: And for the bazillionth time this episode, I'm going to be mentioning the Warriors. They're going to come back out and play, because <laughs> I am recommending that. If you like this, you're going to love the Warriors. Check it out back um, to
3: back weeks I know. <laughs>
2: One of us recommends I know, the Warriors I know I know and I thought about that too but yeah definitely the Warriors they're kind of like similar films they, it's, they, they're they just you know fucking go see the Warriors check it out if you haven't already I hope you have by the way
3: <laughs> yeah and then play the video game see I don't know if you can download it nowadays or uh, if there's any way Probably to play can. it can yeah I don't know if it's on any digital stores but Video game too. Awesome. Mm-hmm. Uh, but for me, I went a different route a little bit. Um, you know, I, I could have went like the Walter Hill route, like recommended something from him or, or something uh, somewhat similar. But I don't know, like just watching this, uh, it just made me want to watch it. I'm probably going to watch tonight um, or in the next few nights. And that's Blues Brothers. Like it just, <laughs> you know, it's from a, yeah, you know, it's made from a similar time. Uh, obviously, the Blues Brothers,
4: uh, you know, he- he- heavily Chicago. music
3: involved. Chicago obviously plays a big part. Just has a lot of car, you know, famous car stuff for Chicago. Like, just the amount of cars and police cars they wreck. Um, But, you know, I don't know. It's just from a similar time period uh, from another awesome director, John Landis. I mean, just an absolute classic. Uh, you know, who doesn't love uh, John Belushi, Dan Aykroyd, trying to save... Uh, their orphanage, they're on a mission and, uh, you know, all they knew is blues and to drive fast, pretty much, so, uh, it's classic in my opinion, if you haven't seen it, like, what are you doing, but yeah, it's just made from the same era in the 80s, like, they just don't make movies like this anymore, just with a bone simple plot and uh, you know, just cool action scenes and cool music, you know, that's really all you need, so yeah, Blues Brothers to me, that's just what I'm just like, now I gotta go back and rewatch that, because that's just, it's kind of uh, Streets of Fire just kind of turned me on, and now i got to scratch that itch, if you will. There you go.
2: All right, let's talk about our movie MVPs.
3: All right, now, you might think I'm a little biased, but I take my job as a presenter very seriously. I will show no favoritism. I am here to honor excellence. And the most valuable player is...
2: I'm going to hand the reins off to you, Corey. Why don't you kick this one off?
3: This was a lot tougher than I thought. I thought it was gonna be either Pare or Defoe, hands down, uh, going into it because I love Willem Defoe. I mean, he's like one of my favorite actors. Like, just I honestly, I really can't even think of a bad role he's been in where I'm just like, oh man, he's terrible. Like, I I love him from like his big budget stuff when he played like the uh, Green Goblin and Spider Man. From his smaller stuff. To his more recent stuff like in the Northmen. I mean he was like one of my favorite things in that movie. Uh, so I just love him so much. But to me I can't pick him. Because he's just not in it enough. I mean he's he looks the part. Like he's cool. Like he's great in all the scenes he's in. Uh, but I don't know. I guess it, to me it just needed a little bit more. I really liked Michael Paré too. And I think he's good in the role. I think he was a good lead. Like he definitely looks the part. He definitely has like a tough. Even though he's, like, a pretty boy, he definitely does have, like, a tough streak. Like, I buy that he's tough in this movie and that, you know, he's, like, this vet that just kicks ass. Right. Like, Paré pulls it off. I don't know. I, maybe other people don't feel that way. Maybe he's just a pretty boy to them. But uh, I think he has both sides. I think he's, you know, he, he's, like, the good-looking lead, but he's also tough. I think what he's missing, kind of, and that, you know, makes me question a little bit more is the sense of humor like you know we kind of talked about Rick Moranis I think you know just having a little bit of comedy mixed in with his uh, role is kind of what's missing for me I I don't know if I'm off base with that or with anything else because I mean when you break it down it's a silly premise and a silly just meant to be fun movie and yeah his character's supposed to be badass but I think just having that little bit of touch of comedy mixed in there would have kind of helped. I I don't know. That That's just me. So, you know, I'm like glazing over Michael Paré. So I'm just thinking to myself, I'm like, who else then? Like, and then, you know, as I watched it, my favorite part of the movie was honestly Amy Madigan as McCoy. I liked her the best, honestly. So I, it might be like controversial, <laughs> but she's my MVP. I know it's taken me a while to get there. Uh, but I 100% believe her in the role, I thought she was funny, I thought she was great, like, I love the line, I ran out of wars, I love her and Bill Paxton's interaction, like, her, her introduction in the bar, to me is pitch perfect, I absolutely buy her as, you know, being another vet, and being able to get out of any situation and drive any vehicle, uh, so honestly, she was my favorite character in the movie, honestly, I no faults with her whatsoever, I think, uh, she got enough screen time, she was believable, She's probably the most likable character for me. So, uh, you know, it might be controversial, but Amy Madigan is McCoy to me as the the MVP.
2: I should just flip on my camera right now so you can see my answer written down because I had the same thing. Amy Madigan is my answer. Oh, it? wow. And I it did not expect it, that. It wasn't, even, it wasn't even a contest, dude. Like, I knew early on she was my favorite, especially after that interaction between her and Paxton. And it's the way she holds herself and carries herself throughout all the bullshit in the movie. From, you know, what she takes when she goes into the bar to what she takes from, you know, Tom and and certain uh, parts. Um, And I just, she just, Amy Madigan just feels naturally like the character she plays. Um, it, It, you know, it's just... I don't know she is mccoy she is everything about that character and she's everything about her performance is spot on so you know it it wasn't it was no contest hands down she's the winner of the mvp in my eyes so yeah man i'm I'm glad we both were uh able to agree on that one well before we get out of here let's give this film the final effect treatment
4: Ow. On a scale of one. Ow. On a scale. Ah. On a scale. Ow. On a scale of one to ten.
2: <sighs> on a scale of one to ten. Give me the damn veggies. What do you think? I guess I'll start. I am giving Streets of Fire four stars. Here's a film that came out of nowhere, and I honestly haven't been able to stop watching it since that first feeling. There's a lot of various reasons that go into why I said why that is, and ultimately, I find this movie to be a nice and easy watch with an underrated cast that's chock-full of catchy and memorable tunes, and the inclusion of Bill Paxton most definitely brought this up to a four-star film from three and a half. It's essentially, like I said before, an 80s version of West Side Story, and I'm definitely here for it. I mean, everything from, you know, the production design to the cinematography to the music, first and foremost, the music, the fact that it's as fun as it is, um, the fact that, you know, we can still sit here and have a lot to talk about with some of these characters. Um you know, it's it's a movie I've watched at least four times since I since my first time back in March, so that should tell you something right there. I listened to the soundtrack an awful lot. And um yeah, I'm just pissed I didn't discover this movie sooner than this year, so this would have been a fucking great film to be, you know, to, to be in my possession for like the pandemic and shit a couple years ago. But whatever. There's plenty of movies out there. I'm glad I discovered it. Period. So, yeah, four stars for me. The uh, that's my answer. How about you?
3: So this is a solid uh, three stars for me. I think this movie succeeds in what it tried to do. This big, bombastic fun, energetic, uh, movie. And, uh, this, you know, this film pulls it off fairly well as far as, like, a musical or a rock-type movie where men and women can enjoy because, you know, I'm not ashamed to admit it, but, like, you know, I like some musicals. Like, I like Sound of Music, uh, you know, but I think it's a little bit tougher as a guy to kind of admit that you, uh, like that or know some of the songs. You know, I think it's easier... If you're, you know, a female, and, and you know, maybe that's changing nowadays, maybe. But I feel like if I was in high school and I said I love the sound of music, I feel like I would have got beat up. Uh, <laughs> but this movie, I think, pulls it off fairly well. Where I think you can be a guy and you're like, yeah, I like, I like Streets of Fire. It's awesome, and obviously, uh, women too. I think it kind of bridges that gap where it's got like that tough male um, machismo side to it that the guys can enjoy, but also the music and the softer side. Uh, so I feel like you know it kind of blends that together and kind of brings in uh, two different crowds almost with the musical and then like the Walter Hill slash badass action side to it as well so I think the movie succeeds in that uh, respect and that's why it gets three out of five because it, it is fun it does have the energy uh you know it, it can have wide appeal other than a few scenes that we've talked about previously um you know is it a perfect film no like I, like I mentioned before you know there's definitely, uh some weak spots on the plot. Uh, there's you know, I appreciate the runtime. I like the short runtime. Uh, you know, it's such a breeze to go through. You know, nowadays I feel like modern movies and storytelling is such long form where it's either like a miniseries or a long ass movie or what have you, where you just have to invest so much time. I just appreciate any movie that's an hour and a half, can get its story in and out, can get you that experience. And you can have so much fun. Uh, and this movie pulls it off, you know, like I said, a couple weak spots. But overall, just fun and enjoyable. And like you said, I wish I had heard about this before. You know, I mean, I guess it's understandable. I mean, Walter Hill's heyday uh, during his heyday, we were either like babies or not born yet. So, you know, it makes sense. Like, uh, you know, there's quite a bit of his filmography I haven't seen. But uh, after watching this and I mean, obviously, I've seen several of his films. But after watching this, it makes me want to go back and kind of revisit because I'm like, what else has this guy been up to? I mean, I have I bought the Extreme Prejudice uh, Blu-ray a while back because it was I think it was literally like five dollars. I was yeah. in a, um, I think I was in uh, Soundgarden, actually, much like you said with this film. I think it was literally five dollars used. So I was like, yeah, why not? Uh, <laughs> you know, this looks like it's right up my alley. So now you got to watch
4: Yeah,
3: I, I've been meaning to get on that. Uh, that Trespass sounds good to me, too. Like I, I didn't. I vaguely heard about it because of ice tea, like, at his gag. I vaguely heard about that. Ice Cube's I...
2: in it, too. I forgot about that.
3: Yeah. Oh, an Ice Cube. Okay. Yeah.
2: Both the Ices.
3: <laughs> Both the Ices. Just missing <laughs> Vanilla Ice there, and then you got them all.
2: Oh. Um.
3: But anyway, yeah, it just, I think the movie succeeds. I think it's a great time. I think if you're even a little bit fan of, like, a rock opera or a musical or Walter Hill, Or, really, even like the 50s and like the Art Deco aesthetic. I think there's a lot to enjoy in this film. And yeah, I think it's great, honestly. Three out of five. I think it's a solid film and one I'll definitely uh, look forward to rewatch. Actually, I'm curious to see because my wife is a big musical fan. I'm curious to see if she's familiar with the movie, honestly.
2: All right. Well, this episode is sponsored by Ticketmaster. Check out L Name and the Attackers' Reunion with your Ticketmaster tickets. Remember, Ticketmaster is still the most reliable service in the game. And that's going to wrap up our episode on what the Hill Streets of Fire, a film that's 100% getting our full film effects seal of approval. One down, many more to follow. Check out our ever-growing collection of previous episodes on all major platforms. And if you haven't already heard... No, I'm sorry. And if you haven't already, then please follow us on all of our active social media platforms. More importantly, Twitter and Facebook, but we're also on Instagram and TikTok. We'd really love to hear your feedback on this episode or any of our previous episodes you may have recently heard. You can do so by leaving us a review, a rating, or rating on Apple, Spotify, Facebook, email, or wherever you're listening that allows ratings or reviews. And spread the word. We're really trying to make 2023 our biggest year yet, and you guys can help us by simply telling a friend about the podcast. Word of mouth is how I personally discovered a lot of podcasts that I listen to every week. So let's get our let's let's grow our Film Effect family, shall we? Even bigger than it's ever been before. Kick off your weekends with all new, fewer cast episode now dropping each and every Saturday morning, and of course the Film Effect every Tuesday morning right here on the main feed. Next episode is going to be a special request. You all know Jocelyn, <laughs> our newest member who's primarily heard on fewer cast. Well, back when she came on board, I told her to have her husband, Greg pick a movie to talk about on a future episode. And he happened to pick 2001's bandits with Barry Levinson, Baltimore, baby starring Bruce Willis and Billy Bob Thornton. So Greg and Jocelyn will be joining Corey and I next week as the four of us sit down to discuss bandits and, I personally have not seen Bandits in about 15 years or so, but I do remember liking it, so I'm curious to see how it is this time around. I remember um, watching
3: yeah. it, uh, yeah, because we, we worked at the video store when this yeah, movie this came was a out. So I remember,
2: title, yes.
3: Yep, I remember renting it, watching it, thinking it was okay, and then thinking I would never think about it again until, uh, you know, apparently... <laughs>
2: apparently,
3: Greg and Jocelyn love this movie, or... They texted you, and the autocorrect got us, and we're talking about it for no real good reason. (laughs) So, you know, I figure it's one or the other, but either way, it'll be interesting, and uh, I'm looking forward to uh, talking with uh, Jocelyn's husband. uh, Because I know he's a listener, so yeah, shout out to you, (laughs) Greg.
2: It's like bandits? I meant to say Batman, what the hell?
3: (laughs) Or Time Bandit or something, I don't know. Time Bandit, yeah. Fucking anything, I don't know, I just did this movie. And I'm not judging anybody. No, no, no.
2: I have
3: random. You love what you love. Yeah, exactly. I have yeah. random movies. We we people... love
2: Dr. Giggles, for Christ's sake.
3: <laughs> yeah. Or like a, a, another one I watched recently, Grind. Like that terrible skateboard Oh my movie God, that was on fucking
2: YouTube the other day. It's always on YouTube, but I saw that it was on there for free. And I watched it myself and I'm like, what the fuck did I ever see in this movie? Oh, it's oh, terrible.
3: Man. But I still like it. I don't know why. Yeah,
2: yeah, yeah, dude. I watched one the other day. This might throw you back to about thirty years ago or so. Remember an old horror movie called Mikey? Mikey. It had. It had. Yeah. It had um, Brian Bonsall, the, the 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 boy from fucking Blank Check. He plays this boy Mikey who just goes around tormenting and killing like his foster parents and shit. It's a wild movie. It's got fucking Ashley Lawrence from Hellraiser. It's got fucking uh-huh. Mimi Craven. I think she's his daughter. When I say uh-huh. he I mean Wes. Um and it's got um uh, we just talked about him. The fucking Ferris Bueller's father, uh Lyman Ward, is also in it as a fucking guidance counselor. So yeah, dude, a lot of people show up in that movie and now I'm
3: interested.
2: Yeah, I, I wanna watch Yeah, I I, I, hope- I it was on sale on Black Friday through MV, Day on Blu-ray. I got it for six bucks, <laughs> brand new. I will I just, lay it on you, dude. I we just have imagine, to like, talk about this.
3: It's like a blank check sequel. Like I just imagine him torturing like fucking Tone Locke. <laughs>
2: <laughs> <laughs> fucking Miguel Ferrer, um, uh, <laughs> bro, Michael Lerner, and Tone Loke. All three of them after fucking Brian Bonsall, who's like, dude, remember that movie? Because like he like, like, like Duffy is like, like three times, like three times, it's like 30 years older than him. And like, she agrees to go on dates with him and shit. It's really fucking. Oh yeah. It's, it'll, it'll fucking melt your mind. Let me tell you. But, uh, and, and dude, shout out Rick Dukeman, the late Rick Dukeman in that movie as his, as his limo driver. See you, man. That's a boss from the past. Anyway, any last words before we depart, Corey?
3: No, uh, no. Uh, just go watch streets of fire. If you haven't seen it yet, <laughs> good times.
2: Yeah, and if if you haven't done so already, go watch Bandits so you can check out the episode next week. (laughs) All right, well, thank you all for giving us your time, and we'll all be back next week for Bandits. Until then, everybody take care now. Bye-bye. See you guys.